Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. The home of all things spooky, especially in the coming season, because by the time this goes up, I think it'll officially be fall. I am one of your hosts, Ms. Palmoy. I'm the other host, Mr. Kreger. Yes, he is. And tonight we are discussing in honor of our belated birthday on 9-9, a film from the harrowing year of film, 1999. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is also our 90th episode, Nines All Around, The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense. Written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. I see nine people. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Starring Bruce Willis, Haley Joel Austin, and Tony Collette. Which, can I just give Tony Collette like an Oscar, like for my... Oh my God. I can't believe she didn't win for this. Oh, and I can't believe she wasn't nominated for her episode. I mean, I can't believe that, but... I know. Still makes me mad. I know. She was nominated for this, though. She was. So was Haley Joel Osment, I believe, too. Yeah, and he lost, too. Yeah. Fucking... Was it American... I know American Beauty won Best Picture that year, but... I don't know who won. Um, Haley Joel Osment lost to Michael Caine in Cider House Rules. And... Tony Collette lost to Angelina Jolie for Girl Interrupted. You know what? Okay. <laughs> oh, wait. But how, was Jenna, I know, how was Angelina Jolie best supporting actress? Was she best supporting actress in Girl Interrupted? That is the question. Why was she not in the lead category? That's weird. Other podcasts will answer this. <laughs> <laughs> why? 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 Tell us why. That's not for us to know. Why was Tony Collette robbed? <laughs> in 19, well, I guess it would have been 2000 at that point. Well, yeah, for the ceremony. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be diving into that tonight. We felt it would be pretty fun considering it's kind of out of left field. Um, it is 22 years old as of this past August. Um, it's easy to think about that. And, you know, we have some strong opinions about all of your strong opinions about M. Night Shyamalan, so... So buckle up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but before we get into that, let's do some horror headlines. Mr. Kreggers. Okay. I can see some of your headlines from here. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, I mean, big news on my personal home front. I put up all my spooky stuff. I was told I'm not allowed to do it until October 1st. And oh my, my plan right now is to like sneak like one a day. That's what you gotta do. That's what you gotta do. That's what um, our friend Amy does, who lives with our friend Megan. Oh, is Megan a stickler for? She's a stickler for when certain decorations can appear at what time. Oh my god. Um, the thing is, is I don't feel I will be physically stopped. Like if I just start doing it, I'm not going to be like physically held down and told to stop. Right. Um, just bound by like a verbal agreement. Yeah, but uh, I've already gotten a couple small ones that I snuck out there but well I normally was the kind of person who would wait until October 1st Mm -hmm. and then you know once the calendar's right I just put everything up on the first but last year you know with everything going on with the pandemic I decorated early like July (laughs) (laughs) I think it was like mm, September 15th is so yeah July yeah I'm this mostly. year, like, I still kind of want to de- decorate a little bit early, but not that early. So um, I decorated yesterday. Well, the time of this recording, I decorated yesterday. So, so the 18th. 
Gotcha. Which is only like three days later than black. But you know, like you're recovering, you're getting there. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that helped get me in spooky season. Was listening to my spooky music Halloween playlist. Pretty fun. And then um, got some spooky reads lined up, as do you. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm like, what have I been watching though lately? I guess not a ton because I've been trying to like save stuff for. Well, since know. last time we recorded, you saw Candyman. I don't think you had seen that when we and malignant malignant yes um I guess the two big ones did you see both of them none of them I did not no you did not okay no um Candyman I thought was good I did not realize how much of a direct sequel it was going to be Mm -hmm. I mean they really harken back to the original which was kind of cool Mm -hmm. And to tie that in. Um, yeah, I liked it. Malignant. I hearing, didn't, hearing divisive things. I did not love it. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that he is doing something really different with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like everybody should just shut up if you don't. <laughs> like, if you don't like it, that's fine. Yeah. But like, you don't have to tear it apart. Like, at least... He's trying something. That's interesting because I feel like that's going to be a theme with a lot of stuff I have to say later about The Sixth Sense. Because mm-hmm. um, I re- had a real, I'll get into it, but yeah, that is a good, that is a good theme for, for today. I just feel like something we see a lot in the horror community is people being like, nobody tries anything different with, you know, horror right now. It's all just the same stuff over and over again. And James Wan is doing something kind of different with malignant and then people are like i don't like it yeah i read um like a couple months ago tim wagoneer had a book about writing horror where he had a whole chapter about how he was like yeah like writes you know and he had examples of people who had written things that were like you know what you call quote unquote ahead of their time or just like not what anyone else was doing yeah you no know, and eventually you know it crushed it because you know this is newly scary like it's very hard now to scare people with vampires or werewolves or even ghosts or serial killers or slashers okay. like doing different stuff like yeah it's weird and you know so maybe it catches you off guard more than it 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 scares you but you know yeah i totally agree he's also playing around and like sort of doing his own version of like a giallo film Mm-hmm. And so I think um, maybe a lot of the negative reactions are also coming from people who like aren't familiar with that kind of mm-hmm. filmmaking or that subgenre of horror. So they think like certain moments that aren't meant to be taken seriously are serious. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, he's going intentionally over the top, like they do in that style of horror filmmaking. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I just think there's a bit of a disconnect maybe with between some folks in this movie and also plenty of folks who totally get it and still don't like it. And that's fine. I didn't love it, but I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be something that we're going to be talking about for a while. So check it out. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do know that it was based off of a graphic novel series, and I think I think it was his graphic novel series from like 2011. Oh no, it's not based off of that one. It's just called. It's just called. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. when I saw the trailer, knowing what the graphic novel series was about, I was like, this doesn't look like the same thing. <laughs> yeah, everyone thought that at first when the title was announced. And then he had to be like, oh, no, sorry, it's something else. I didn't realize you dig into my uh, backlist. <laughs> yeah, which maybe that's why some people are disappointed if they were expecting the yeah. graphic novel. Interesting. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so... um Oh, I watched um, a classic horror story on Netflix. Sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. It was um, an Italian film about this group of disparate folks who are being transported on like a, like, zhuzhed up Italian version of Uber, which is basically... (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining, like, main skin playing. (laughs) they're in like this big like caravan and this guy's like taking them over the mountains and stuff or whatever and they get into an accident and they find themselves basically trapped in the woods like in this field with a creepy house and a cult (laughs) no way out and then there's this like totally out of left field bonkers third act would you say it is not a classic horror film third act (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of, I was like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> um, and it was ended up being a, a fun ride. So uh, another, another one I would recommend checking out. And um, I think, I think that's probably it. And of course, obviously now that we're properly into like spooky season, like all I'll be watching is horror pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? Um, well, I did start my spooky reads just after Labor Day because I told myself that's when I would start. Mm-hmm. I like crushed um things have gotten worse since last we spoke in like okay, a day because yeah. it's very short. It's a weird fucking book. <laughs> it's, it's definitely like psychological horror that's very unsettling. Um, but it's also like parts of it like taken at a distance or like what the fuck did I just read? Um, it's interesting. It's very quick read. It's basically about, um, two women connect on like a early 2000s message board. Um, oh my God. yeah, that's like a queer message board, but they connect because the one woman's selling something else and the other woman wants to buy it and they start talking more and they start like this, like online sadomasochist relationship. And for oh. a minute you think it's going to be like, okay, like, is this weird, like, Fifty Shades of Grey, but um, it goes yeah. off rails in a strange way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's interesting. It's funny at times in ways I don't think it was supposed to be. Um, I definitely think it was written by somebody who doesn't, who either doesn't fully grasp what like bondage and sadomasochism is to people who uh, are like oh. folks who actually practice that. Um, gotcha. But it was fine. I gave it to a friend. I was like, you have to read this. because Well, much like... Uh... E.O. James, right? With Fifty Shades of Grey. Wasn't that a yeah. big... Like, yeah, so yeah. it's two different bad takes in both <laughs> those books. Oh, great. So I'm waiting for the real sadomasochists to write their, their books, but um, I started like, reading... Getting it wrong. Right. Um, I started reading Mongrels 
by Stephen Graham oh, Jones. Stephen Graham Jones. Which is about a young man who, with, it's, it seems to be coming of age because he's getting like progressively older. Um, sure. And uh, he's like born, like he, his family are werewolves and he's like waiting for his like werewolf sort of puberty to happen because he hasn't like wolfed out yet. And he's being raised by his aunt and uncle. Um, that is like his aunt and uncle are siblings. They're not married aunt and uncle. Oh, got you. Okay. his aunt and separately his uncle. And separately his uncle. Yeah. And they're raising him. And it's pretty interesting. They have to like shuttle around all the time because they're werewolves. And it's interesting. It's an interesting take on werewolves because parts of it are very like what you would expect from werewolf stuff. And parts of it are like, here's our specific rules about, um, you know, well, that where a werewolf is and that sort of thing. Yeah. So in reading those, I went to go see Blair Witch in 35 millimeter at the Colonial yes. um, and picked up a book there from, I forget his name, um, by the guy, from the guy who wrote it um, called Eight Days in the Woods, which I tweeted about. Um, yeah. That is like the behind the scenes, this is how they made the film. Um, and there's some fun tidbits already. Like there's copies in the book of like the notes that they were given as directions for the scenes and the safe word that they had um, when they were supposed to be out of character. Mm. Like the one note, you know, it says the safe word at the top and then it gives them directions to run later that night. Like when they're like, hey, just so you know, like when something happens tonight and you run out of your tent, go, you know, like 10 steps this way, find this marker and then turn, you know, it was like very much like practice this so you don't run into a tree. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it's cool. He runs a um, an excursion into the, the Burkittsville, Blairsville. I forget what, what its real name is, but the woods. Oh, yeah. Down there. Um, Burkittsville, I think. Yeah, so I did that. I also watched the first two films that Shudder put out for their 61 Days of... Are they calling it Terror, Horror, Halloween? Uh, I think just 61 Days of Halloween. Okay. So yeah. I watched... Um, Superhost. How was it? It was good. It's it's definitely like tense in in a way that I think was effective. It's um yeah. The woman who plays the titular Superhost is um real creepy. Um she kind of reminds me like a little bit of like if Melissa McCarthy were doing like a horror role. Oh, interesting. Like, it's kind of, yeah. Um, good thing I watched that after I had a very scary host for Airbnb the weekend before. Um, yeah, well-timed on your part. Yeah, but it's about a um, an influencer couple. Parts of it were actually kind of funny because they were, like, very seriously talking about, like, influencer problems oh at, like, the same level you would talk about, like, your house being foreclosed upon. They'll be like, we're not getting enough views um, but it's an influencer couple that um, their their whole shtick is they go to super post houses on unnamed, but it's obviously Airbnb um, and like vlog their time at the house and review uh, the house and they go to this house and they've been waiting to go to it for forever. It's always booked and the host is really unsettling and there's something off. I thought it was good. I thought the end was one too many twists the point where okay. actually I'm kind of confused still about what happened. Uh, um, it was just, it was too twisty at the end. Um, but it was good. We'll be getting into 
twists and too stuff. many twists. It's interesting because the second one I watched, Martyrs Lane, which came out this past week. Oh, that's um, right. That's supposed to be really good. So yeah, so I I think it was technically good. It was great. I think it's a good example of films trying to do what the Sixth Sense was really good at. Like, and you know, when I say trying, because I feel like it didn't really land at times. I felt it was it was very slow, kind of in the way like La Llorona. A lot oh, okay. of people felt that to be slow. Um, and also, like, it's obvious from the very beginning, like what's going on. Um, but it's basically about this like 10 year old girl who her mother's kind of weird. She's got a locket with something inside of it. Um, that, That's know, never girl, good. Yeah. And the girl's kind of fixated on it. And then one day she opens it and finds out what's inside the locket and then is afraid of getting in trouble. So she, she throws that item that was in the uh, locket um, out the window. And then a ghost girl starts appearing in her window each night dressed in sort of a raggedy, like, child's like angel costume mm, that's this, a hard no yeah and uh this ghost child sends her on like these scavenger hunts to find clues about where the item from the locket ended up and it uncovers like a larger secret but it's like one i feel like the audience gets pretty quickly mm. so it feels like it takes a long time to get to the revelation and the denouement ending is kind of weird but um worth a watch um i definitely agree with the metacritic score on it more than the rotten tomato score okay um metacritic's a little lower yeah um but it's interesting having watched that and then watching the sixth sense because i feel and we'll get into this but i feel like what the sixth sense did as a horror film and the way it paced itself and what it was you know doing structure wise is something that a lot of people have tried to mimic because you know i feel like right now everyone thinks art house equals slow atmospheric horror and it's like which is not true right and it's you know in this case it actually kind of like was a little bit of a slog to have to deal with so yeah something to get something to get into yeah definitely i mean we could talk about this you know more and i'm sure we will but like sixth sense is kind of like the perfect um script to have like screenwriting students look at mm -hmm. like i'm not saying that like it's necessarily a perfect perfectly written movie mm -hmm. but like what it does with structure and narrative like in screenwriting I feel like is right and you know what I mean yeah well and one of the things that I you know my big takeaway from it and this gets into like our discussion later on legacy is that people really focused on Shyamalan's the like the content of his twists and forgot that you know his skill was not in like the twist itself, but it was in the structure of creating a revelation within within the narrative. Totally, yeah. I've got some. Yeah, we. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, now we've segued like five times yeah. into the next. I guess you really want to talk about this movie? Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. Cool. That's great. Anything else for horror headlines that? I don't think so. The next Shutter film. Oh, you know what I did watch that was really fun. I forgot Mass Hysteria. Oh, okay. That I was like, that looks like it could be fun. Okay, so it has. It's going for the same energy as the Babysitter. It's not quite as successful. Like sometimes it's just plain uh -huh. silly as opposed to like 
silly fun or silly funny, but it's, it's that, you know, you have to go into it thinking it's going to be that same energy and it's, and I found it to be quite entertaining. Like it was fun. It it's filmed in Salem. So, you know, you'll recognize some set pieces. Um, but it basically is about a group of like locals who are like actors in like a Salem reenactment show on Halloween night who, um, basically like tourists start getting dropping dead from mysterious illnesses and they blame the one main actress for it because of like the timing of something she she said in the show when somebody drops dead and they're Mm -hmm. all drunk and stupid and there's like a preacher outside um so they're like they form a mob and chase them all over salem i mean great (laughs) no i found it quite quite enjoyable the characters are pretty funny um Again, it's another one of those movies where the sort of third act twist, quote unquote, isn't, you know, a huge shocker, but I also don't think they wanted it to be a shock. Um, It's just, it's, and it's quick. I think it's like a tight 90 minutes and it's fun. Good. So that's a a good one to check out then. Yeah. And the new one that Shudder's putting out, I think next week or the week after looks pretty fun, Seance. Oh, I, when people saw that at, I can't remember what festival it was earlier this year. Like everybody loved it. Yeah. I'm excited for this one. <laughs> I am really looking forward to seance. Um, oh, there was something I was going to ask you. Now I can't remember what. It'll come to me later in the middle of the discussion. You're going to scream in the middle of like. <laughs> it'll just be like total like out of left field. To go back to an hour. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. I was like, can I remember? No, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. No. <laughs> like for, I was like, oh, he looks like he's thinking about something on his face. <laughs> Whatever. Um, yeah, well, let's move into the main part of our discussion then. Cool. About 1999's The Sixth Sense, directed by M. Night Shyamalan and starring Bruce Willis. Haley Joe and Tony Collette. But first, let's take a listen to the trailer. You know the accident up there? Yeah. Someone got hurt. They did? A lady. She broke her neck. Oh my God, but you can see her? Yes. Where is she? Standing next to my window. Shaking. Cole, what's wrong? Did you ever talk to your mom about how things are? I don't tell her things. Why not? Because she doesn't look at me like everybody else, and I don't want her to. I don't want her to know. Know what? I see dead people walking around like regular people. I don't see anything. Are you sure they're there? Sometimes you feel it inside, like you're falling down real fast. You ever feel the prickly things on the back of your neck? things for them. 
they know that you're one of these very rare people who can see them. So you need to help them. What if they don't want help? I don't think that's the way it works. How do you know for sure? Is anyone there? So, uh, <laughs> I actually, I did watch the, I actually physically watched the trailer for this. I forget why I watched it before I started watching um, the movie. Um, and I feel like I remember <laughs> seeing the trailer. I feel like I don't remember the trailer at the time either. I remember the poster. Yeah. the Yeah. The poster is like iconic. I feel like at this point. Yeah. It's funny though. Cause it was back in the days when, um, they still had like the AOL narrator guy doing all the like trailers, like in a world. Yeah. <laughs> you always, that always makes me laugh when you go back and watch old trailers. And I'm like, oh yeah, this was like standard way to do Ooh, trailers. We used to narrate shit. Uh-huh. Before like we decided that everyone could, you know, visually put together the premise. What was going on? <laughs> That people have the whole job of cutting together a trailer for that exact purpose. With the exception of Dune, because they do not care about explaining to anybody what Dune is about. Oh, they don't care. (laughs) They don't care. But in general, we've actually kind of taken it, I think, too far in the other direction. Because now trailers are like five minutes long, like giving away half the movie. To go back to Dune, that was a three-minute trailer. And I think they may have done that because it was all online. Because, you know, it wasn't showing before any film. So right. I'm hoping that doesn't become the norm. But I was like, holy shit, this is a three-minute trailer. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, just tease it for me. Make me interested. So show, like... me, show me shots with sepia tone and angelic <laughs> music. Gosh. Anywho. So uh, we like to start our discussions with a nice basic question that um, we're kind of talking about right now. Because you know, do we remember the trailer? Blah, blah, blah. When did we first see this film? And what were our impressions? I have a story for mine. And I think I've told you this before, but I haven't talked about it on the show. I was about, when I actually sat down and watched the film, as opposed to seeing clips of like, I see dead people everywhere. I was probably about 12. So I saw it, I saw it fairly late, but I saw it because it was on TV. And my mom was like, oh, we should watch this because she loved it. Yeah. And we're watching it and she's like, she's telling me, oh, she's like, you know, Donnie Wahlberg, like really, you know, messed himself up, you know, getting ready for that role. You know, she's telling me the thing. I'm like, great. Uh, and we're watching it and, you know, the like, opening- who? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, who is that? Um, the opening scene happens, you mm-hmm. know, we cut to the following fall. And I said to my mom, I was like, he's dead, isn't he? I had no, I didn't, you know, this wasn't an example of me, like, having some sort of cultural osmosis. I had no idea what this film was about besides Haley Joel Osment sees dead people. But I was just like, okay, Haley Joel Osment sees dead people. That happened. I I was like, he's dead, isn't he? She, like, I thought she was going to disown me. (laughs) She was, like, so excited to show me this movie and, like, experience the twist with me. And I was just like, he's dead watch you get like surprised yeah and she was like and you know we watched the whole thing and it was still very enjoyable but she was just like really mad that I had uh 
in in her in her defense, you know, it may have been a clue to me that there was a commercial break uh, between between him dying, you know, and when they the, came back and said the next fall, that may have given me time to kind of to piece it together. It. Um, I do wish I could have seen it, you know, and experienced it the way that everyone else did with like the the shock, but um, you know, it didn't lessen it for me. Yeah, no. Still found it interesting, but it was really funny how like she like did not know what to say because <laughs> she was like, "Do I lie for like a just second? <laughs> um, wouldn't it have been wouldn't it have been hilarious if she just she just like turned it off? Yeah, she's like, "Well, we're not watching anymore." <laughs> um, but that was my first time seeing it. When was your first time? That's funny. Honestly, really similar. Um, <laughs> did not see it in theaters. Was like probably a, actually I probably would have been okay, but maybe I was a bit too young. I was eight, just about to turn nine Mm -hmm. when that movie came out. Um, But I didn't see it in theaters. I remember everybody talking about it. Mm -hmm. I remember everybody saying how scary it was um, and like they needed to go see it. And so I think, I don't know, I guess probably like a year or two later, whenever they started showing it on TV, Mm -hmm. um, I remember the first thing I ever saw from it was the scene at the birthday party where he okay. follows the balloon upstairs and mm-hmm. there's, you know, the very kind of like very aggressive, scary voice, in very this. scary voice from the creepy cabinet and the boys lock him in. And I remember that scene really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think at the next commercial break, like wherever we were, we had to go. And then like a week or so later, I caught it from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I, I connected that the balloon scene was from the sixth sense. Like, I think I just watched that not knowing what movie this was. Yeah. And then like watched it from the beginning a couple weeks later. And then I was like, oh, yeah. Um, but I, I, like I thought I was watching it. Right. Yeah, I was like, I don't know. It's but I did movie. at that point because of cultural osmosis, I think I knew the twist. I knew that. You know, what's funny is I, at the, I, at the very least got to have the revelation of Darth Vader. Like I, ha- I got that. I remember that happening. Same. Yeah. Um, and if I had to pick one, I feel like that's the harder one to get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah. And isn't that kind of funny that we had that twist you know, which was like the eighties in the eighties. Yeah. So at least like 15 plus years later, when we saw those movies for the first time that we got to experience that, but then like with the sixth sense, which we saw within like a couple years of it coming out, like you guessed it. And I already knew. Yeah. That's kind of weird. Yeah. It's it. And I think it also like, that's, you know, and again, you know i've said this five times now we'll get into it but i do think you know a lot of that comes from people overplaying the twist Mm -hmm. every because you know the twist comes in the gentleman it's like eight minutes left in the film and you find out you know everything up until then is the movie right um well and what's great (laughs) now i'm doing it we'll get into it yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but first, um, we've got some great background information to get into. So 
why don't we start a little bit um, talking about like, what's the deal with the idea of seeing dead people and mediumship and so did you grow up like seeing like your parents or maybe you like watching those like medium shows on TV, like John Edward and stuff? Um, it wasn't something that either of my parents sought out, mm-hmm. but it was something that I think was still enough a part of the culture. Mm-hmm. I caught it and was aware of it, like just tangentially like if it was on at a relative's house or even on our house and stuff whatever like without necessarily realizing it at the time like I knew who Miss Cleo was yeah yeah she was I think she was the big one in the 90s yeah yeah because she yeah she was huge in the 90s and so I think I was like okay there are people you call or whatever that tell you your fortune that's kind of cool I didn't understand all the full backstory of it or like you know that some of those people, not necessarily her, but maybe her were like regarded as like charlatans or what, you know. Um, What, yeah, what was your sense of that? It was something I was super aware of. And I think it's because it was something my mom was very into. Mm -hmm. Um, She was just very into mediums and that idea of ESP and all that stuff. And like, I've been to mediums before and I will say they're either really, really good at their cold reads or you know there's something there that you know what have you I don't you know that's a discussion for another day like I've (laughs) been there and I've been like I have no fucking clue how you would know that is there tricks to this maybe but it's definitely something that I was very like I remember John Kelly being on like daytime tv or John Kelly (laughs) I'm thinking of Edward Kelly different guy um (laughs) John Edward um like, I remember him being on TV. He would have a huge studio audience and he'd just like walk out on the stage and he'd be like, okay, I'm getting an H, you know, who's, who's got a, who's got an right. H and, you know, somebody stands up and they're like, my father was named Herbert and, you know, it, it snowballs from there. Yeah, they go from there. Um, but it's interesting because I think we both clocked in our like, sort of like your notes for the outline for this, um, the, and this might be a good episode to do this on because it's it's one that I have been interested in like spewing out is like the history of spiritualism in the United States and what it has to do with yeah. basically things still going on today. Oh, it totally is. Like, like you were saying, like, you know, your mom was into it and stuff when you were a kid. Like my mom got into it when I was a little bit older, mm-hmm. like around when I was in high school and college, like because she lost her parents like back to back within a year. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a factor of it. And then like, I kind of had those experiences like you were talking about, like Mm -hmm. I went with her, you know, me, my sister and mom, we went to Lilydale in New York, which is like a town of psychics and stuff or whatever. And we went to God readings (laughs) and private readings. And I went to this one woman who like her thing was, she drew a picture. It was like her reading of you. And there was like a timeline, you know? So it was like, and there were some weird things where I was just like, how on earth would you ever know that? Like, that's not just a random fact right. that applies to anybody. Right. And then there were some other things, you know, that I was just like, well, you maybe. Could- yeah. 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 That's it. another podcast altogether where we're like, what are our theories of the universe? Um, I guess I'll say that like, we've experienced it and it's still a current thing that a lot of people are interested in and invested in. Right, 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 right. And so- this is we're well, I guess we'll give the the quick hits on 
on what this is. So basically, um, 19th century, you know, rolls around. There's a lot of death, right? There's a lot of epidemics. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, people are, you know, there's war in 1812. There's people are, are polarized. You know, they're afraid there's going to be a war. They're fighting about women's suffrage. They're fighting about slavery. They're fighting about everything. Factories, um, industrialization. Right. All the yeah. Hacks. So, yeah. So there's all these things disrupting their lives, you know, changing the way they're viewing their world. And basically in like the 17th century in Europe, there's this guy, I'm going to butcher their names. They're very, <laughs> they're very German names. Emanuel Swedenborg. Amazing. And Franz Mesmer uh, basically starts this like, sort of hypnosis, vision, trance thing. You'll probably recognize Franz Mesmer's name uh, because it is the source of the term mesmerize. Um, he's the founder of mesmerism where basically you put people into a trance. I've never been hypnotized. Have you been hypnotized? I've never been hypnotized. I have, I guess, tried to be. Mm-hmm. I've been in like situations where like you know the hypnotist is there and it's very like vegas and they're like mm-hmm. supposed to like hypnotize the whole room or whatever to do some things and i'm like i feel like i'm not really feeling this mm-hmm. i'm not saying i don't believe in it yeah but right you know. i had a i had a friend at like post prom that's that's what i was thinking of actually. yeah who i was i didn't watch it i wasn't there People who were there said that she was doing, you know, she was hypnotized and she was doing shit. And she said to me later, she was like, yeah, she was like, I fully like, all I remember is him saying this. And then I remember being, you know, standing at the edge of the stage, people clapping or whatever. So I don't know. I don't really care. I don't have an opinion on it. But that's kind of what starts this is people going into trances, having visions, you know, claiming faith healing from these people. And like, basically um, in like the 1830s, Andrew Jackson Davis, what a name. Um, what a name. Is this guy who like from a young age was like, I can heal you via, they call it magnetic healing. I don't know what that means, but he's <laughs> just like, <laughs> I gets at you. Yeah. He claimed he could heal people. He claimed he could see things. He claimed he had trances and, and visions of the like utopian spirit world. Um like what's that Michael Chavon book about um the it's an it's a young adult book Summerland that's, Summerland. What, they, that's what they called their their utopian um world basically that they would see and so anyway he's doing this and it becomes like a real philosophical thing like it's not so much a parlor trick or magic as he's like basically developing a religion around this Mm-hmm. At the same time, in Hydesville, New York, you have the Fox Sisters. Right. Um, famous for claiming to have heard ghosts, talking to them by what's I guess they call it rapping against the walls, hearing pops, asking them to answer mm-hmm. questions based on like knocks. And they become involved with a group of um abolitionist Quakers from Rochester, New York, who latch on to this immediately and it's really very interesting because it almost feels like a huge precursor to like hippie shit right because it's these people who are abolitionists they're women's rights activists they're basically everything you know we might today quote unquote call liberal 
um, even though obviously at that time, Democrats were like pro-slavery, whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, um, and they latch onto this. They like, they think of it as, you know, like, oh my God, like this is such a powerful gift and it proves connection after death, you know, you know, death is not the end, you know, we can connect to our fellow human beings, like all that gets wrapped up in also them being like, oh, and by the way, the spirits say you should free the slaves and give women the right vote. <laughs> That's yeah. what they're telling us. I'm just the messenger. Um, yeah. So it becomes a political movement. I was going to say, so it's this weird thing where it's like, it's like religion and mm-hmm. personal stuff all tied in with like politics and current events, like all at once. Right. And people don't, people, I feel like, you know, not people in general, what I, historians know what's what, but like, I feel like a lot of people, when they think of this time period, they forget like how entwined and enmeshed it was with politics. Like the Republican party came out of spiritualists founded the Republican party. Basically. Oh, totally. It was, it was mad prevalent. Mary Todd Lincoln was mm-hmm. a huge spiritualist. Yeah, I was reading about spiritualism and then I was like, okay, I guess I gotta read Lincoln and the Bardo. <laughs> <laughs> I have a copy in the other room. That's so funny. I did read it. It was fine. <laughs> yeah, I, felt, I felt that it did not land until like the last 30 pages. I don't really like Saunders, so yeah. Anyway, point is, is yeah, so you're right. Mary Todd Lincoln, huge, Arthur Cannon Doyle, Charles Dickens, Thomas Edison, Pierre Curie, all these people are somehow involved That surprises me a bit. Yeah, yeah he yeah. went to, um, he and, you know, Madame Curie uh, went to, you know, watch spiritualists and what, because they were like, okay, what is this? Is there science to this? You know, because to them at the time, like a vast majority of the United States believed in this and believed it was, an actual, an actual thing. Um, basically, when it starts to die down and become more about entertainment than it is about like politics and philosophy is after the Civil War, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people are dead. They become very disillusioned because they're like, oh, yeah. my God, we were promised, you know, peace and utopia. And the result was a lot of, you know, dead human Not beings, um, you know, for the you know, it, and slavery, yes, is nominally abolished, but there's still a ton of problems and they, they just become disillusioned with it. They kind of fall away from it. And it becomes more about like parlor tricks and like people charging to have their tarot cards read. Harry Houdini famously like fucking hated spiritualists <laughs> and would go around like haunting them. Yeah, intentionally like seek them out to yeah. expose them. Yeah, because I guess I, I guess he had nothing better to do. I don't know. But, um, you know, it basically dies down by the turn of the, like, 20th century. Um, and then what we know today as ESP, extrasensory perception, um, mm-hmm. also called the sixth sense, um, which I would be curious to know whether it was called that before or after this movie. Mm. You know? Um, I think before, but I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Yeah. So anyway, it that becomes a, that gets coined in the 1930s by researchers at like Duke University. I don't think much comes of their research, um, <laughs> and it kind of lies low until the 60s, and then it becomes a big thing again. Um, you know, in the 90s, you had Miss Cleo. Uh, John Edward is publishing his first book the year before The Sixth Sense comes out. But if you you know notice today, there's a fuck ton of paranormal ra- reality 
television shows out Hell there, yeah. um, who are basically modern day spiritualists. They're using the same things, you know, more technologically advanced that these people were using back in the day. And, you know, the theory is that the uptick in that, which started around 2004 with um, Ghost Hunters was like the first one on, I want to say sci-fi, um, was a post 9-11 reaction because it was like we're seeing all this death it's very traumatic and people turn to like connection to life after death and all this stuff so it's interesting thinking about six sense coming out on the cusp of that right like right before right like almost predicting that you know something you know whether it was y2k or the turn of the millennium but something about that is like bubbling up yeah it was in like the cultural zeitgeist yeah and very interesting yeah um and like that makes sense too when you think about like you know you think about how there was like uh um a spike in like um church attendance after 9-11 like even like a more established like organized mm-hmm. religions also saw people like because it was just like how the hell do we process this right amount of death and tragedy like on tv right and it was also like it wasn't even like yeah you heard that 2900 people died you watched them die you know that was very traumatizing for an entire nation so they're like communication with it you know like it's interesting the way that our mind goes back to that um yeah and like just trying to insist upon life after death and a possible connection therein and that's, I feel like, ultimately what The Sixth Sense is about. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so it's interesting to kind of think, like, how much maybe, like, Shyamalan was in touch with all of this that was going on, like, at the time when he gets the idea for the movie. Because um, in terms of that background, so he, this is his... This is Shyamalan's third film. You watched his first two weird films, I did. right? <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, his, very, his first film is called Praying with Anger, in which he writes, directs, and stars oh boy. as a young um, Indian-American man who is sent to India to finish out his schooling because he's causing trouble back home in Philadelphia. Interesting. And it's, you know, it's, it's a coming of age movie. It's mm-hmm. not very good. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's, it's competent enough, I guess, for a first time mm-hmm. director. His second film is a bit more um, big budgety or at least mid budgety. It's called Wide Awake. Um, it's a movie about <laughs> a young boy Mm-hmm. loses his grandfather mm-hmm. and he's very upset and he's trying to talk to him again mm-hmm. and he's trying to find god and he goes to catholic school and so he thinks maybe the answers are with his teachers and the priests and you know the archbishop comes to visit and rosie o'donnell is there as a nun oh my god plays baseball and <laughs> at the at the very end of the movie um, we find out that this little angelic cherubic boy, but the main character keeps seeing 
throughout the movie is actually an angel or like his grandfather or something sent from heaven to tell him that everything is okay. And then he like disappears. It's like a theme then with the- Yes, this boy. So this boy that the main character has seen throughout the movie that he thinks is just another student is not actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. um, But- When did that movie come out? Wide Awake came out in 97, question mark? It's interesting because I bet you it has the same. um... Oh, sorry, 98. So a year before this movie. So I bet you that it has the same catalyst as The Sixth Sense. Because what inspired The Sixth Sense, the same catalyst. Because what inspired The Sixth Sense came out in 1994. Probably. Yeah, that was probably like a statement of intent. I would think so. Yeah. And there's a lot of like similarities between praying at anger and wide awake. And even with sixth sense, like where he's starting to form, like, I don't know, his themes and like bullying is a big part of all three of these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, in, in regards to wide awake though, the movie does not get marketed as to what it actually is. Like if you look at like the posters for it or any of the promo materials, it comes off as this movie that is um, like just one of those like quirky 90 movies where like, mm-hmm. like Rosie O'Donnell is heavily featured in the promo stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's really just like a minor supporting character in the movie. Okay. Like it's a lot more staid and kind of philosophical. There are funny moments, but he was like, I wanted to make a comedy that made you cry but it was promoted as more of a like straight comedy kind of thing. And he was really, really unhappy with that because Mm -hmm. that's not the movie he made. And he felt like it was why the film didn't do so well at the box office. Mm -hmm. So after that experience with Wide Awake, basically he's like, I am going to write a script that is so good. (laughs) The the, uh, Jane Lynch. Yeah, the Jane Lynch thing. I'm going to write a script that is so good. So good that I will be able to sell it for a million dollars and retain all creative control. Mm-hmm. So then he writes The Sixth Sense. He ends up selling it for $3 million mm-hmm. and getting the deal that he will be able to write and direct it. And I believe control most of its marketing because of you know everything that mm-hmm. happened with wide awake interesting um and and yeah and you had some some stuff about um the the, that those early stages in terms of like the idea of the film yeah so the concepts for it and i imagine for wide awake came from a episode from 1994 from a personal favorite of mine are you afraid of the dark love it um about a character who's like feeling ignored and bullied um, and stuff. And then he realizes at the very end um, that he's been dead the whole time because his sister shows him his own obituary basically. And that's why he's been ignored and and stuff. Um, And like early concepts of what became Silence of the Lamb like involved like Bruce Willis's character as like a crime scene photographer and his son was the psychic who experienced visions and that sort of thing. Um, Shyamalan estimates that it was 10 drafts from that to what What we ended up seeing on on film. Um, But yeah, like you said, like he sold it for 3 million to um, 
Buena Vista, I think, originally. Um, yeah. And then or, some sh shenanigans happened. Right. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. Disney, the parent mm -hmm. company of Buena Vista, yes. was upset that um, the script had been purchased for $3 million because that's yeah. an insanely unusual amount. That and that he was like, yeah, Shyamalan, you can have control because they were like, who is this guy? So yeah. they were kind of pissed about that. They let go. I don't know if it was directly in response to this, but they seemed pretty upset. Regardless, the guy who bought the script and oversaw that contract was let go. I Yeah, I believe I've seen that he was directly fired because of this. Yeah. And Disney ended up selling it off, selling rights to producing it off somewhere else. They maintained distribution rights and they wanted right 12.5 um, percent of the box office they just wanted to spyglass right yes i think yeah. so which um, now well i don't think i think spyglass i don't think it exists anymore defunct but i think before they went defunct they were ended up being bought by disney yeah so anyway there was some shuffling going around people were not too happy about it but um yeah i mean he was an unknown director they were kind of pissed about the price tag i wonder i do wonder what three million dollars is in today's money it's probably still quite a lot oh man i mean that's scripts don't especially from no-name directors like really breaking it big in hollywood for the first time yeah there's their screenplays do not get purchased for that much money yeah even now like no no that just yeah. doesn't happen. yeah so um all that went down and they're like, yeah, you can, we're going to, you know, they'll make the film, we'll distribute it, but they just were not super happy about how it went down. And I think they're selling the production to Spyglass was to recoup some of that 3 million that they apparently paid um, for the script itself. But regardless, <laughs> Shyamalan still was allowed to direct. Um, yeah. And it seems like he was allowed to maintain a lot of um, creative control of the marketing as well. Which is also, um, well, I guess it's rare-ish nowadays. That you, uh, I mean, yeah, I feel like it's it's like because there's so much um, like that goes into like you hear about so many like fights over the marketing of something. Yeah, and I feel like it's so hard for somebody who's not like a fully established, you know, writer or director to like have control over the marketing because you hear all the time like people will blame the marketing uh for the right. reason that their film is received a certain way or or what have you yeah and it's i guess it's really a testament to Shyamalan that he i don't know like held firm enough or believed in his idea enough that he was like no you're gonna give me directing and marketing yeah. <laughs> like Good on him. Um, yeah, and I don't think the budget for the film, I mean, what, it was 40 million. That's not terrible. Yeah, that's that's respectable for the situation. Yeah, so I imagine they probably, because everything that I was seeing is basically there was no expectation that this film was going to do much. No, they're so really they're just like, yeah, whatever. You can have marketing. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's filmed... It's filmed on location in Philly. Mm -hmm. um, Wide Awake is also set in Philly. Uh, so this is his second film 
involving Philly, where he is himself is from. Mm-hmm. Um, praying with anger is obviously said in India, but he references being from Philadelphia. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, themes. He he's he's using the same stuff over and over yeah. again. Which um, he'd become famous for for like an M. Night Shyamalan film set somewhere in and around Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. Except for old, unless the beach that makes you old is in the Delaware Valley. <laughs> right? And maybe it is, because I haven't seen old yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it didn't get the kindest reception. Uh-uh. But uh, who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Um, I, I couldn't find a ton about like how long filming went on for or when it was yeah, filmed. But... I found some fun tidbits. I don't know how long it was filmed for or even like you said, when it was filmed. It was filmed primarily and they built sets and sound stages, sound stages in the Philadelphia Convention Hall and Civic Center, um, which no longer exists. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> um, it was knocked down. It was knocked down like in stages, but um, in... 2007 I think it was fully knocked down to make way for a UPenn hospital oh well Um, good replacement but yeah they built like sound stages in there and sets and like set up like the full like makeup areas and that sort of thing um Yeah. So like they built um like they did the makeup and costumes in there and stuff. Like there's stories about um Misha Barton like running around in makeup, like trying to fuck with people. <laughs> That's kind of funny though. Um, but they also filmed um in St. Augustine's Church in yeah. which I think is in South Philly, and then um Old City and in Center City as well. Cool. Did you now? Most of our like longtime listeners will probably know that you're from Philly. You're in that area mm-hmm. now. Did you recognize anything? Oh yeah. I mean, well, what's funny is in the very beginning when he tells um, Gray Vincent Gray his address, mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't live there in that house. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's bullshit. <laughs> that's hilarious yeah because i was like that you know the house that he's in is definitely one of the like really nice brownstone like uh, society hill houses Uh and where he the address he gives is is like is not that i don't know if it maybe it was in the 90s but it definitely isn't now (laughs) it's like university city housing oh that's so funny Um, yeah because when he's like i'm on 46 or 47 or whatever he says locust i'm like no you're, no you're not you're like no 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 um but yeah it's funny too because i feel like they picked the prettiest parts of like south philly to show mm. throughout but um yeah but no i mean yeah there's i mean obviously there's different parts i recognize and they show the skyline but um what? it's funny because people around here really don't give a shit about Shyamalan films being filmed here like it's not like um you know like night of the walking dead is such like a point of pride for pittsburgh like people around here are like oh yeah they're filming another fucking Shyamalan movie like it's blocking traffic (laughs) like i I wonder though if at the time it was a big this movie was so huge Mm -hmm. that he hadn't like then done another like 12 movies like if people cared well and that's the thing with like the village the place where they filmed the village um has become like a real like flyby hotspot for like people to the point mm-hmm. where they've like got cops around now to like dissuade because it's like a private road 
Um, yeah. But no, it's nice. And, you know, I feel like they definitely, he definitely had good scouts for locations in the area. It definitely created a very good fall ambiance. Um, yeah. The images they chose. Um, I always forget that this movie takes place in fall. Right. Yeah, because it's, you know, it's the one, like, quick subtitle. Um, and then, you know, there's constant shots of, like, leaves blowing and stuff. Yeah. But, um, I was like, oh, this also works out for our September yeah. episode. Yeah. yeah but um no it's very it's very nice um we're definitely going for the brownstone cobblestone look in philly which you know totally it's nice <laughs> but um um great yeah um yeah i think the production it, it sounds like you know it wasn't a terribly like troubled or dramatic production like everything i've found seems like it was a pretty you know chill set apparently bruce willis would dj yeah he was like a party guy (laughs) on the weekends like when the crew had parties and i was like baller i was trying to find ghost stories because they all claim that they thought that the civic center was haunted but uh i wasn't wasn't finding much i think it was just really creepy yeah it was very old you know like you wonder like sometimes like has it become one of those things where like if you're filming a scary movie particularly one about ghosts like you have to have a creepy story from right from- right yeah so. you're like oh yeah i totally thought it was haunted when i was 10 <laughs> right yeah um but the film um well i guess maybe we could talk about that more with uh when we talk about no we'll talk about it now right mm-hmm. that's where we are sure I'm like, where are we in our Arrangement. So the film was released um, the first week of August of 1999. I want to say August 6th is the exact day. Um, August that- 2nd. You're close. Oh, okay. August 2nd. My bad. Um, now, August was traditionally, and it still is for the most part, um, is the no man's land. Kind of like January. Um, much like January. Yeah. There's like when you. The film calendar has like two kind of dump months and it's January and August um, for films. But kind of starting around this time or at least in the 90s, the first weekend is in August is where you kind of shoot your shot and you drop a film that you think a studio thinks could perform decently well mm-hmm. and then the remaining weeks of august you just do the crap because and you save what you have good for labor day weekend for like um awards runs yeah and stuff. yeah and then moving into the fall then it becomes awards season gotcha. so august the first week of august is the last chance to drop a potential summer blockbuster basically mm-hmm. so that's when six cents comes out of 1999 that weekend it's competing against mystery men the Iron Giant. I love the Iron Giant. I love the Iron Giant too. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dick and the Thomas Crown Affair. So this is such an interesting, I actually got a friend of mine, a book that is entirely about films that came out in 1999. I know that book. Yeah. I want it. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I was texting her as I was watching, like re-watching this and stuff and she, and, you know, like looking up different um, things about it. And she was like, oh, that wasn't in the book. But um yeah like so it comes out in this year alongside um i put down only the most iconic 
films are the ones I deem the most iconic. Oh, no, totally. But like, hit us with that list because it's insane. So this is just the the abridged list of films that came out in 1999. That is The Matrix, The Blair Witch Project, The Mummy, American Beauty, Toy Story 2, American Pie, Eyes Wide Shut, The Iron Giant, Fight Club, Princess Mononoke, the first Pokemon film, The Green Mile, Bicentennial Man, Girl Interrupted, Galaxy Quest, and The Talented Mr. Ripley. It's crazy. <laughs> and that's just like, I pulled like 10 films from, from the list. Like there are others on there that I just didn't, I didn't. No, yeah, because there's, I mean, like, um, there's also, there was also Runaway Bride. Mm-hmm. Deep Blue Sea. Which, Runaway Bride, by the way, the Chicks had a great music video for. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of 1999. Speaking of 1999. Yeah, that was before they fell from grace. Yeah. Um, that's also the the Haunting remake. Yes, that also came out that year. Mm-hmm. Um, Notting Hill. Mm-hmm. Big year for Julia Roberts. Uh, oh, um, uh, oh, and Inspector Gadget. Yes, Inspector Gadget. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it was insane. It was an insane year of film. That's why there's a whole book about just that yeah, year. Book on it, Miss Mel said. Her friend has it. I, I would love to read. It. We would probably have a lot of fun with that book. No, I got it uh, for Christmas. I think last year. You know, oh, you year of. Well, I don't have it. I sent it. Oh. That was my Christmas gift to her. You, was, um, you mean you got it for your friend? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could borrow uh, it, but um, which I'm yeah. right now. <laughs> right. Because it's totally, yeah, like, you were, oh, sorry, also, um, Run, Lola, Run, mm-hmm. um, the second Austin Powers movie. Yes, yes, that, I almost put that on there. The only reason I yeah. didn't was just because, well, I was like, okay, is the spy who shagged me as big as the first one? I was like, maybe. I, I know. <laughs> now I was just like, I just like, interesting ones mentioned, Wild Wild West. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, Wild Wild West. <laughs> Wild Wild West is so crazy. <laughs> Um, the Red Violin, Bowfinger, Detroit Rock City. Crazy. Like, yeah. like the- Do you think that the, the, this movie came away as the second highest grossing film of the mm-hmm. year in the year of those films is nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. But basically the point that Ms. Mel and I are getting at is that 1999 is now regarded as Hollywood's best year. Everyone thought they were going to die in Y2K, so they were like, <laughs> we got to get our movies out. Do it all. Um, it's, it's also kind of considered almost like a perfect year for movies. Um, you've got your big studio tent poles. You have a ton of blockbuster success. You have all these critically acclaimed films. It was just a great year for movies. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, the fact that the sixth sense does as well as it does is really kind of amazing. Um, we've hinted on it a little bit, but we'll just talk about it now. Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Also 1999. It has been out for about four weeks at this point, mm-hmm. and it's made $80 million. Yeah. Which on- is insane considering their budget was like $300,000. <laughs> yeah. It was like borrowed money from like their parents. Yes. I read that in the book about all the shit that they did to try and raise money. Uh-huh. So that's still in the top 10 when Sixth Sense comes out. Oh, and Phantom Menace. We forgot. I knew that they came out and I listed that somewhere in the notes because I think it's the only film. I think that was the highest grossing film of the year. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I didn't put it on the list of films because I was only putting iconic films. <laughs> and I feel that that is iconic for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yes, it sure is. But at the time this drops, it just falls out of the top 10. Yeah. It was released Memorial Day weekend. Interesting. Anyway, so it's interesting that we've got this thing going on, though, like with Blair Witch Project um, coming out uh, like a month, essentially, before Sixth Sense. And that being this absolute phenomenon. Juggernaut. That's what they were actually telling us at the showing because of how unexpectedly well Blair Witch did. That's why you can't really get a 35 millimeter showing of it anymore because they killed it killed the the reels of film. Right. It's they had to run it throughout. They were telling us they had to run it throughout the theater simultaneously at different and it just killed the the film. And they were like, yeah, there's only like two or three that still exist. Second actually, yeah, that are still left. Because like Blair Witch Project was this very rare thing that captured the entire culture. Mm -hmm. Everyone had to see that movie. That's what everybody was talking about. And then, well, it was super rare for that to happen. It was super rare that it wasn't part of like a pre-existing franchise. Right. And then it was super, super rare that another horror movie does the exact same thing. By a no-name director. (laughs) By a no-name director. Everybody was talking about The Sixth Sense. You had to see it. It captured the entire culture because that's what everybody was talking about. The fact that it happened so soon within such a short time of each other is really kind of mind-boggling. It's like, I I don't know what was going on in the summer of 1999, but people were in a weird place. People were in a weird place. And I think maybe from an analytical standpoint, I find it really interesting because the films are so different from each other. Right. Like, it's, it's interesting because they get compared, but they get compared for like statistical reasons and like what right. they achieved. And one take that I was reading, a sort of like retrospective uh, piece on it was saying, basically it felt that they performed as well as they did you know, in part because of the gimmicks, quote unquote, the gimmicks that, you know, the sort of conceits surrounding them, but sure. also because it was coming on the tail end of people getting fatigued by the like meta horror and slasher revival that was That's happening. Point. Yeah, because Scream 3, I think, comes out the same year as well, or the year before, or the Scream- year after. It comes out really close. Scream 3 is right after, 2000. Yeah. So, you know, at that point, people are kind of over, they're like, oh yeah, okay, this was fun the first time. They're kind of over that with Scream and like, I know what you did last summer and stuff. And this, you know, Blair Witch is its own weird thing, but this really harkens back to like low budget narrative focused horror films of like the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And that's what I think is so interesting because I feel like in a lot of ways, the sixth sense is really the end of an era for this particular kind of movie coming mm-hmm. out of Hollywood. Like, like you said, it's very 60s and it's very 70s in a lot of ways. It's, mm-hmm. it's quieter and it's, it's um, slow burn. And of course we still have quiet slow burn horror, but it is different. Right. Well, like, what I, I just love that they're taking, like, you can see the tropes. You know, you can see the things that, you know, it's stuff straight out of Poltergeist, straight out of Amityville, like, you know, the cabinets opening scene, 
some of the ghost stuff like even when he's walking up the stairs it looks like for a shot for shot like scene from Nosferatu like it's very clearly like yeah. a Nosferatu nod and stuff and it's all very like classical stuff but it's interwoven between like very character driven almost thriller-esque elements and like lots of dialogue and and that right. sort of thing yeah and it's like we don't really get too many movies like that after this anymore. Like the style of storytelling and filmmaking changes. And so to have that with Blair Witch Project, which is sort of like this marker of the future of horror movies mm-hmm. and what they're going to become. And, you know, I don't know if it had something to do with like, you mentioned the millennium approaching. Yeah. I don't know if that was part of it, but I, I think it's so fascinating that these two are happening at the same time. They're both massive successes. And it's, you know, it's this like, almost like a passing of the torch sort yeah, of situation. Yeah, it's like, here's where we were, here's where we're going. Because one's very, the best of, of what's come before and the other one is like, this is what they're waiting for. You know, yeah. very forward thinking um, yeah. way of doing, doing a film. Yeah, experimental, yeah. Um, which, fun fact about Blair Witch, the film that you see was not the intended film. They sent them into the woods hoping to get about 10 minutes footage that they could put between talking head segments in the fake <laughs> documentary that was going to become the film. And then they went through the 22 hours of footage. Oh my God. They collected and they were like, oh, I think we have a movie here. <laughs> well, like, I think, I think we can actually do something else. <laughs> the movie. Um, which is kind of funny. That is funny. But no, that is really interesting to think about because like everything about The Sixth Sense is very throwback, you know, like yeah, from the way, you know, the way the characters are, the settings, the pacing, the, you know, the way the scares are sort of done, the sense of dread. And then you're right, you have Blair Witch who it's like, you know, experimental, new kids on the block, you know, we can make a horror film based on everything you're worried about in the next yeah. the next 10 years after after the millennium. Like it's very interesting to to see those happening back to back and hitting what I assume is the same audience with like equal fervor. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like Blur Wish is like this, yeah, right? This they were cobbling together what happened and it's yeah. and it's experimental and it's like they're like I hope you know how to film this because we gave you three days crash course on how to use a DP (laughs) yeah total departure from anything that had really come before it but then Sixth Sense is it's this is it's a very controlled movie it's very professional it's very slick the way is well and I don't know if this is a legacy thing or what have you but just like the the care and the like need for each scene to be constructed as it was and to flow the way it did and the different things that they had to do choreography wise or shot wise or even costume wise to make sure that they never gave away what was going on and also never detracted from the film at the same time was like you know insane just film school like you know controlled stuff it's abs- absolutely very controlled, very calibrated, like, um, because it had to be, right? Yeah. 
for, to make the story work, to make the payoff work. And like the way Shyamalan uses um, like spatial geography mm-hmm. is very effective and very sort of like a classic way of using space on film to right. tell a story. And like even the bits, you know, cause Bruce Willis doesn't talk to anyone but Haley Joel Osment. Um, We realize that now, even though he has scenes with several characters and just the way like he's playing into sort of like the traditional Hollywood way of you having scenes where there's very minimal dialogue, where a lot of it is, is body language or, you know, you coming in understanding that something has happened just before you've come into the scene and like using humans as sort of set pieces in that way, um, is really he just he used that to his advantage like the entire time where you weren't even questioning you know why you know you didn't even notice Bruce Willis didn't talk to anybody no yeah yes because it's it plays so well with you know at this point audiences are pretty well versed in movie logic mm-hmm. and it gets us for that you know yeah. like it's very very clever movie very clever like uh some of the things I was seeing, like the costume department only dressed Bruce Willis in in clothes that he either was wearing or touched in the first scene in the night that he he would have died. Oh. So he's wearing various, ver- like different combinations of those clothes. It helps that he's wearing a three-piece suit in that scene. So right. it's for him to play with right. what he's wearing. And he's wearing a trench coat. And I think he touches a sweater at one point too, but and he's never dressed in anything that in anything else, yeah. already see him in in the beginning he never wears his wedding ring and to hide this because bruce willis is left-handed he learned how to write with his right hand because there's a couple close-up shots of him taking notes yeah but he didn't want the audience to see that he wasn't wearing a wedding ring because that's obviously the big that'd be a giveaway, giveaway at the end um you know nobody ever looks at him he no. you know, he's looking at them they never talk to him um and an interesting one that really doesn't have to do with you know the Bruce Willis stuff but the character of red or the character of red the color of red oh yeah is used through the film it only appears in scenes where the other side has somehow touched um the the real world right where they want to hint at something about the other side right uh the doorknob the doorknob is red balloon the balloon, the door to the church. Um, the, church um, the murder mom is wearing red. Is wearing red. Cole's blanket fort is red. Is yeah. Red. Um, yeah. Yeah, because we don't see the color come into play any other yeah. time. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Brilliant. I mean, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Love it. Um, so the movie does phenomenally well. It spends five weeks as the number one film in the country, um, you know, in terms of box office. It eventually, off of its $40 million budget, grosses $673 million. So Uh it (laughs) makes a profit. Don't know exactly uh, how much of that ended up where, but I feel like most everybody involved was probably pretty happy. Yeah. <clears throat> um, this this film wasn't um, like people were like, okay, this will be fine, but it was not expected to do as well as it did. 
Right. And what's interesting is, you know, I feel like probably a lot of people will say this about films they work on, but I, I, I tend to believe that the cast didn't really think of it as a horror film. They were actually very surprised um, mm. during early screenings that people reacted the way they did. Like Haley Joel Osment talks about going to see an early sort of um, cut of it, you know, somewhere at Disney and being really surprised that the audience was like, <clears throat> you know, reacting the way he did. He was like, oh, that's how they see this film. And Misha Barton, who plays, um, you know, the dead <clears throat> girl at the end who's poisoned by yeah. her mother, she said she had to go in for ADR and she brought her younger sister with her and she's doing her ADR and her younger sister like screamed in the middle of it because she was, she was like, did that sound come out of you? And she was like, oh, okay, I guess this is a scary movie. Um, so it really, because they were seeing it as sort of like a, a family drama. Well, and I think what's so great about this movie is that like any really good horror movie it works as a drama mm-hmm. and it, it is a drama like if you if you take out the, the twist if you take out the very end of this movie the rest of it still works perfectly yeah well and, and that's what's so interesting is because the twist could have so easily ruined the entire thing if yeah. it had been handled differently um but I think it was handled perfectly. It was executed perfectly. Um, and it was in such a way where it just enhanced what was going on as opposed to like completely taking away from this huge emotional, like the scene where, um, you know, Cole tells his mom the truth, like yeah. that was such an emotional scene for them. They couldn't even get it in one take. Like they had got it through a couple different takes of different lines. And Shyamalan was saying like, Tony Collette and Haley Joel Osment were just sobbing and they're like, did we get it? <laughs> like, they were like, did we get the shot? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And then he was like, I think we got the shot. <laughs> and then, you know, turns out, you know, eventually, obviously they did. Um, I mean, that's an incredible scene. Yeah, no, it's a really, it, it still gets me. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, like between Tony Collette, just like, you know. Oh. That scene alone is why she got the Oscar nomination. Yeah. When he, he, you know, he was talking about, he was like, he visited her grave and he asked her a question and the answer is every day. And I'm just like, oh. Like, oh. let's sobbing in, in her. Right. In um, but yeah, just going back to what you were saying, I definitely agree with you that rarely is a twist this effective in yeah. a story or a movie. Um, I think looking at this movie, like 90s movies, it's interesting because you have the usual suspects like four years before this movie. Mm-hmm. And its twist is very, very effective. It's built into the DNA from the movie from scene one. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this film is doing the same thing, which is why it works so well. Right. Because it's not an afterthought. It's not a just like, I'm, I just want to get the audience, you know? Right. And there's still so much character and drama without the twist. Like the twist is not the point of the story, it just adds to it. And that's what I think people forget when they write twists now. Yeah. Yeah, well, everyone's trying to to trick, you know, because I feel like if I were to think of big film twists, I think of Psycho, Mm -hmm. I think of Star Wars, and I think of this. Yeah you know, 
then you think about really shitty twists or, you know, everything you see every day where it's like, you know, you know, and people try and really push these twists. And I feel like if you compare those to like kind of the big three movie twists and it's like the turn of the century, we'll call Dude, it. Totally. Because I feel like every ghost movie after this had to contend with this movie and the twist. Yeah. And be yeah. like, well, even when I was watching Martyrs Lane, I was like, is one of them dead the whole time? Like I was literally like, even before re-watching this I was like okay I'm keeping my eye out for who's talking to who and yep. who, and what they're saying and how it look you know because I'm you know now that's that's something that people copied so much exactly because there was this thing where it was like oh now you have to have a twist almost yeah after this movie and so and particularly in horror and so many of them like really don't work or don't like hold up on a rewatch. like did you ever see hide and seek with De Niro no it's a totally fine movie until it's twist Mm -hmm. which is a sixth sense ripoff that ruins everything you know what i mean yeah and so yeah there was there was something about this where i don't know everyone just felt like that had to be the thing now without really realizing how to or why it worked you know like the, you I, know, yeah, or why like it a million thing you know there's a million ways you could dissect it and say it worked because you know bruce willis acted it very well it worked because of the, the dp and it worked because of um you know whatever and you know all those things are true like obviously had it been a worse actor it probably wouldn't have been as impactful and it had a worse director it wouldn't have been as well executed but you know i think just taking like looking at the script itself and how it's built into it and how it's part of it and is part of the core structure of the world the film creates but it's the film is not dependent on it no and and its addition and the denouement is just like an extra sort of oh you know like it's almost like a treat to the audience like hey you made it to the end here's a little here's a little nugget for you Uh uh-huh um it's gonna yeah, and you're just going to be like, oh my gosh, and stuff or whatever, but it doesn't negate any part of the journey so far. Yeah, really. and you know, and that was one of the reasons that people thought it actually like really helped the film's box office is because it encouraged repeat viewings. Because people yeah. were like, what the fuck? And they were like, hold on, wait, I gotta watch this again. <laughs> and yeah, the only way on. they could do that was to buy a ticket and go to the theater. Yeah. Um, and be like, oh my God, look, he's not, you know, you know, and they, you know, because there's things where like he never pulls out a chair, like he sits in a lot of chairs and they're positioned in such a way that he just, oh yeah, slides into the chairs. Like the dinner scene. The dinner scene, he does it when he meets Cole at school uh, after he yells at, like he has that altercation with the teacher. Yeah. Um, like he never, he's never touching anything. No. You know, we never very interesting. Open the door, not because it's locked, but because. Yeah, because, yeah, because we're not seeing what's underneath of it. You know, it's all very, it's all very interesting. And, you know, like even building that into that pivotal scene where, you know, and it's funny because they said when they were filming it, they were very afraid they were giving it away when he said, I see dead people and they cut to a close up of Bruce Willis's face. They were Uh sure they were like, fuck, like that's going to really give it away. And they showed it to test audiences and they didn't pick up on it at all. Went over their heads. Um, but like when they were lay out the rules in that scene and they're like, I see, you know, I see dead people. They don't know they're dead. Young. They see what they want to see and they walk around like everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's like all there. Yeah. Like you, didn't, you didn't possibly think like there's nothing that gives you the indication that that's what's going on here. 
And another thing I love about that, and in like in terms of the writing of everything, that revelation that he sees dead people, that comes almost an hour into the movie. Yeah. It's like 50 minutes in. And it's so brilliant to wait that long. I, I just, because I feel like a movie now would not wait that long to give us that nugget. Right. That would be like a 30 minute sort of like turning. Yeah. Point. But that is so great because it makes us spend so much time, you know, <laughs> if we know that you know say we're that kind of viewer being like what, what are all these creepy things kidding. going on yeah what is happening with the kid yeah you know? it's actually when you don't have that knowledge that's a scary hour yeah yeah because you know you're seeing cabinets opening and he knows things he shouldn't know and like yeah. you know i think we might have i think the scene at the birthday party might come before that even I believe so. Yes, because that's when he has like the seizure. Yes, and that's and why he's at the hospital. Yeah. In the hospital. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing stuff. Really well-written film. And for those scenes where they wanted him to have frosted breath, they actually, they didn't want to use CGI because they didn't trust how CGI looks. So they dropped the temperature of the set to below freezing. Oh my gosh. So it's actual like like you know cold breath um Haley Joel Osment was talking about it because he's like yeah he's like I'm 10 I'm in, and I'm in my underwear but like you're supposed to be shaking in the scene I guess so he was just like you know freezing I was gonna say like something you could not do now especially yeah. with a child actor yeah but no yeah they were very afraid they were like Shyamalan was like yeah CGI is not gonna work for this they brought in things to drop the temp like I don't know if it was fans or or mm-hmm. what it was, but they dropped the temperature on set to below freezing to to achieve that. That I mean, that's another one of those like great things about this movie. There is no, there's nothing cheesy to pull us out. Like mm-hmm. all the effects and makeup are practical, but still really effective. Like when the um oh, the the boy with the gun, yeah, the gunshot boy turns around and yeah. um the woman that Cole thinks is his mom in the kitchen. And she's freaky. That yeah, she's, she's, even Misha Barton, who they just kind of do like a little bit of makeup. Like, mm-hmm. it's creepy. Yeah, that's creepy. The um, the the people hanging in the school oh, yeah. when it used to be a gallows. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, so, so, <laughs> all this to say, um, yeah, so the film, like, uh, obviously, okay, we talked about how great it does at the opening. Um, it's like very well critically received. Um, lots of uh, praise for the performances, particularly Osmond and. Um, Which, by the way, Haley Joel Osmond, incomprehensibly cute in this film. Incomprehensibly cute. <laughs> Oh my gosh. He's so small. He's in little outfits. Mm-hmm. He ta- and, and when he talks, he sounds like a grown-ass man. I know. He's, he's, he has so much wisdom. Yeah. And then it's like, oh man. When you think of the other um, major child star from 1999, Jake Lloyd, and his performance in Phantom Menace. Oh boy. He's like a weightlifter just- now or something. Yeah, poor Jake Lloyd. 
But you really, you really wish that Haley Joel Osment had been in the role of Anakin Skywalker as well. Right. <laughs> Can we just have them both come out, or have them have to like have them do both, like just overlap? Yeah, yeah just overlap. Um, but yeah, so um, the film currently has a uh, 86% approval rate on Rotten Tomatoes, um, a Metacritic of 64 out of 100, which is weirdly low, Hmm. I feel like. Yeah. Well, I feel like in some ways this film has been a little bit divisive um, with people because I think there's a little bit of like for like like when it came out like NY Times like trashed it like they didn't like it um and a lot of the like stuff I was reading you know to like reacquaint myself with this for this episode was like Mm -hmm. very nitpicky takes about things and it was just Mm -hmm. like very pointless like you know this one thing was making this whole point that was like well like once the uh you know the twist comes around I was watching the whole movie to be like you know, basically asking how the, you know, mechanics of it would have worked. And it was like, that's not, you know, like, that's not what should stop it. Like, that's not what we're here for. And, you know. Yeah. I think a lot of people have soured on it or like think it's like a hot take to dislike The Sixth Sense. Um, And I think a lot of people kind of come back to it after watching a lot of like Shyamalan misfires and then like trying and trash this too. I see that. I see, and you know, and because it was so big culturally, it's almost like that thing where, you know, it gets like the boomerang backlash, yeah. and like because everybody knows the twist, it's almost just like a parody now, you know. But um, regardless, it's. I mean, it's still like uh, Letterbox gives it a like a three point nine out of five. So, you know, people still remember. Yeah. Um, that is good. In terms of uh, its accolades, it gets quite a few. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. So it gets nominated for six Oscars, I think. Yeah. Including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Supporting Actor. Um, I don't know if it won any. Um, give me a hot second and I will tell you. Um, beyond that though the script like as you said you know in terms of this being like a really good and well-renowned script the script was very well um, received it won a nebula award for best script in 1999 and it was uh, somewhat recently ranked as number 50 on the list of the 100 best screenplays ever written according to the writers guild of america hey how about that um, it did not win any of its Oscar nominations. Um, but it was a big deal that it got so many anyway, especially for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, as many folks will know, if you listened to our uh, Silence of the Lambs episode, that wasn't a common occurrence for mm-hmm. horror movies. Um, this would have been the uh, fourth or a movie overall to be nominated for best picture i do believe i think there yeah i think there are six in total yeah because it was today the exorcist jaws silence of the lambs six cents and then after this 
Black Swan is the next horror film. And Get Out. And then Get Out. Yeah. So kind of in a pretty elite group in mm -hmm. that sense. Um, yeah. And so I guess we'll take this moment to do our roll call. Who is involved in this film? Um, we will go in billing order. Um, of course, we start with Bruce Willis, who gets above the title billing as Dr. Malcolm Crow. Um, thoughts on this performance from Bruce? I love, it's great. He does great. It's funny though, because I feel like for whatever reason, I cannot get over the weird character he played in Friends for like two episodes. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's Rick all I can ever... Yeah, where he dates Rachel and he's like this weird tough guy who turns out to be really sensitive. I just, for whatever reason, I can't unsee it anytime I see him. He's, did you ever see, okay, so he's had such a weird career, but like after he had that, like one of his many resurgences with like, um, I guess it was Die Hard with a Vengeance or Good Day to Die Hard and like, Red two and stuff, whatever. He hosted Saturday Night Live. He was so funny. Yeah. No, I believe he's probably very funny and like great. And that's probably why it sticks in my brain, like his part in Friends, because it's such a ridiculous because yeah. he's basically playing a parody of himself. Like right. he's he's playing he's he's the dad of whoever Ross is dating, I believe. The like college yeah, student he's Elizabeth's dating. Dad. Yeah. And he's just like this tough, scary, tough guy dad. And then, you know, he turns out to be, a he starts, you know, the whole thing is like, Rachel gets him to talk about his feelings and then he can't stop crying. <laughs> he can't let it go after yeah. that. Um, but no, in this, he was, I think he was very good. Um, and I think obviously, like from a sort of like, you know, the logistics of what he had to do. He was very committed to being like, oh yeah, there's certain things I have to do to make sure that this lands the way, the way it needs yeah, to land. Absolutely. And I think this is a really interesting performance for him because I feel like Bruce Willis is not who you first think of when you're like, I need to cast someone as a child psychologist. A nice, soft, compassionate child psychologist. Um, yeah, especially at this point, because when he gets cast in this and he does this role, he's in the midst of a career upswing after one of his many sort of like downswing fallow periods. Um, yeah. he, he had obviously done Pulp Fiction five years before this. Then he does Die Hard with a Vengeance. He does Armageddon a year before this movie. And then this is obviously really, really big for him. He is, there's a weird thing with his salary for this movie. He was paid 10 million um when at the time he was one of those remember in like the 90s there were like there's only eight people eight actors who um made 20 million dollars mm -hmm. a picture and he he was in that group or whatever but for this movie he only makes 10 million because apparently he backed out of a disney project and this and, was his punishment yeah they were they, they're basically like they they do all this stuff with his agent and blah, blah, blah. And like to make up for it, he signs on, he has to do three movies in a row with Touchstone. Um, and so what those end up being are Armageddon, The Sixth Sense and The Kid, which he does the next year. Hilarious. Um, and it's just like, okay, Bruce, sure. 
<laughs> but basically, yeah. And so this bumps his career back up. He does the kid. He does the whole nine yards, which people love. He's in Unbreakable again with Shyamalan. He does Bandits. Then he has another like weird down period and then pops back up again with Looper and Moonrise Kingdom and another two diehards, one diehard. I don't know how many there are now. I have no idea. <clears throat> but um, but yeah, I agree with you though. And I think he is like the least talked about of the three main performances, but it's not a bad performance. No, I think it's, it's, it's interesting just because like at that time, what you would expect Bruce Willis to be in like, obviously, now we all know Bruce Willis was in The Sixth Sense, and, you know, we right. have that thought about it. But then, you know, it's like you 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 see him as this tough guy action hero. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an interesting sort of role to play in a um, more psychological film where, you know, he's playing a, a therapist. Yeah, and his performance is very, like, tempered and... Um... You know, it's just sort of like he's got his weird hairpiece and he's (laughs) very calm and measured. I mean, we see him cry, which I know he's like done that in movies, but it's not something you necessarily think about when you think about him. Right. (laughs) Not his wheelhouse. But anyway, a good performance. Um, Then we get the title card. We get the sixth sense. And then after that is uh, Tony Collette as Lynn Sear. Absolutely no notes. No notes for her. She completely understood the assignment. Um, She, I think, is the secret weapon of this movie. Yeah. No, and yeah, and like that was a through line that some people were talking about, like, because, you know, one theme of this film is sort of abuse, but it's like, his mother's so loving. Like, that's the thing is, is like he, you know, part of the the narrative of this is um, Cole's relationship with his mother and how strained it's becoming because of what he's going through. Yes. Um, You know, and you get hints at everything, you know, like clearly they're not, you know, in the greatest place financially because she makes reference several times to having multiple jobs. And, you know, there's references to her her ex-husband who she's recently divorced and he seems to be kind of just abandoning them. Um, Yes. But she's never, you know, unkind to Cole. Like she's never, you know, she's always like sort of this beacon of support um, for him. And, you know, she kind of reminds me of sort of a proto version of the mom from um, the Babadook. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like just a, a more muted, you know, and less in the spotlight version of this mom who's just, you know, as this kid who's got something going on, you know, and she's at her wit's end with, you know, what yeah. to do. And a little bit of um, Regan's mom in The Exorcist as well. Yep. Yeah, it's almost like she's kind of like this stepping stone between Chris McNeil and, um, is it Annie, I think is the character in The Babadook? I think so. I just, yeah. I can never think about it and not the meme. I know it's Essie Davis. Scre- the kid's screaming in the back seat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you're totally right and that's what i what i love about this performance is that another most actresses probably would have played this character a bit more trashy yeah right. i think right because you get she definitely did her you know her research into like the south philly mom yeah like i get that vibe from her like she's definitely trying to get like the nails are 
the nails, the lower class, the you know, shiny shirts, the shiny shirt. She's at one point, she's in just like some like throw Eagle sweater while she's doing laundry. Like all of yeah. it makes sense, but she doesn't, she never, you know, she, she's like, yeah, this is the type of character it is. And this is the way she affects herself, but it never plays into like who she is or like yes. who she is with Cole. Yes, exactly. And I think maybe my favorite scene in the movie is when this is really showcased is when he comes home from school, mm-hmm. you know, it's them in the chairs and then she goes up to him. Right, right, and they, right. They do that. She tells him about his day. She's like, well, in the morning I won the lottery. Yeah. You know, and then, and then it's and like this kind of in the game. fountain. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of this game between them. And it's just like, you just feel, you know, like what you were talking about, like she loves her son so much, but she doesn't understand, she doesn't understand what's going on. Right. And I think that conversation they have at dinner when she's asking about the brooch that keeps mm. getting moved around. And she says, she's like, look, if we don't talk to each other, we're not going to make it. Like yeah. she's very like forward with him, which you know later I know he's repeating that to her in the car, but I think it's so funny when he's like, "I'm ready to communicate with you now." Oh, I know. <laughs> it's so cute. I was like, "That line's coming out of a ten-year-old's mouth." <laughs> oh man! But um, amazing. Yeah, and then later, you know, she yells at him. She sends him away from the dinner table, and then in the very next scene. You know they have this great it's not even like a great making up scene it's just a great understanding oh. of the, the, you know they're just having you know they're they're missing each other how good is that scene yeah when she's trying to get the which by the way throughout the movie i'm like is the dog really there oh yeah i know right <laughs> but she's like trying to get the dog to come out from behind the i also think what i noticed re-watching it for this episode i'm pretty sure we also see a cat really quickly yeah well that's why i was like is the dog real and then later she acknowledges the dog so i'm like okay yeah she does it must be a real dog because you know she's trying to get the dog out from behind something he had seen a ghost and it scared the dog and then it scared it scares the yeah yeah Yeah, it's it's funny because like the pets aren't characters yeah but no one acknowledges them we get a name once for the dog like yeah waiting for it to get hit by something (laughs) But they still kind of do work because it's like, okay, we're understanding Lynn as this character who cares about like young defenseless mm-hmm. creatures, yeah. you know, and is willing to take them into her home and nurture, you know, like mm-hmm. that's cool. You know, yeah. So yeah. um, yeah, and we've mentioned several times Tony Collette gets nominated for this performance. It is her only Oscar nomination. Which is insane to me. It is insane. Um, we've well, also mentioned I, um, Brittany Coyne asked me, she was like, do you think I could stand Hereditary because she really wanted to watch it for Tony Collette? I was like, you cannot, Tom. You can't, you can't. <laughs> no, you cannot. I was like, I, you Garrett. I was like, she's great. Just know that she's great. You can't, you can't watch this movie. <laughs> you can't watch, don't watch this movie. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So incredible. Um, next up, actually, in billing order, interestingly, is um, Olivia Williams as uh, mm-hmm. Anna Crow, um, Bruce Willis's wife. Interesting. Um, thoughts on her performance and her character? She's fine. I think, honestly, like, she's a good example of understated humor in this movie because mm. her scene with the couple trying to buy the engagement ring, like... Yeah is really great 
I think it's the most dialogue we get from her the whole movie because a lot of her stuff is her you know wandering around and looking sad yeah Um, she has to do a lot of face acting she has to do a lot of face acting a lot of physical acting like I think that scene in the restaurant is very well done the way that she has to sit there and pretend that Bruce Willis isn't in front of her, but then also in a way give us the idea that she's reacting to his presence, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and find the line between acting, seeming frustrated versus being, you know, in, you know, grief and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But no, I love that scene in the jewelry shop where she's talking to the, the couple who's trying it's to It's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very good um yeah and i i think that's probably the best the most of a scene she has besides the beginning but in the beginning she really doesn't get to do much because like the beginning is her basically showering compliments on um malcolm for his award that he wins um right and she's she's there to be like this vehicle for exposition right um yeah i also do really like the restaurant scene it's fun to watch to like when you know right mm-hmm. and so you're watching her and you're like are you gonna give it away at all right and it's she just like she so... looks up and she looks through him yeah I and mean, she pulls the blocking the check. perfect oh the check is yeah one of the best yeah um so after her then we get uh Haley joel osmond as cole sear right i mean incomprehensibly cute and well incomprehensibly done. cute he is so good and it's that very rare thing with child actors where he's giving an actual performance right he's not just like doing coach line readings like parroting them back you know what i mean yeah no he's he's acting he's acting he is responding to bruce willis in their scenes together you know he's reacting with tony collette in their scenes like he is Truly, like performing, yeah. not just like delivering lines. Right. Um, Other potential people who could have played this role: Michael Sarah. I saw that. Can you believe that? He auditioned for it. The role was originally offered to Liam Aiken, who oh. um, you will, some people will probably know from um, huh. the TV or the um, film version of a series of unfortunate events. Yeah. Um, and a couple other things but yeah he originally he turned it down um speaking of almost marissa tomei apparently was almost lynn i could see that yeah i could too i think that actually would have been fine um i like marissa tomei me too i'm (laughs) i don't necessarily know why she won the oscar for my cousin Vinny, but (laughs) I do like Marissa Tomei. <laughs> she's a she's really good as a young hot aunt. Um, what's her face in Spider Man? Oh, May. she's Aunt May, right? Yeah, she's Aunt May, but like young hot Aunt May. Young hot like, aunt May. like stepmom Aunt May. Oh my god! Oh yeah, because that's that thing. Aunt May just keeps getting younger and she's younger. Getting younger and younger. Every time they redo Spider Man. Um, amazing uh yeah so oh so i was like who are we talking about Haley joe osmond mm-hmm. um yeah amazing performance he is a, like um 
from a big acting family, I guess. His dad was an actor and an acting coach. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, what I always forget about him, he's young Forrest Gump. Huh. I haven't yeah. watched Forrest Gump in so long, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, same. So he's the Forrest like, Gump who runs out of his little his little leg things. Isn't that Forrest Gump? I don't, me? Or is that I don't know if he's Forrest that Gump? one or if he's like the one right before. Gotcha. So I he's can't one of the young Forrest Gumps. He's one of the young Forrest Gumps. Um, yeah. Cole as a character um, is very similar to the um, the main boy in Wide Awake. Hmm. Like, who is, it's, I mean, I don't know. M. Night Shyamalan, I guess. You're like, take that know. as what it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he felt that he was that kind of kid or if he just like, that was a character he was interested in writing, but like, they're both like really precocious. They're both like wise beyond their years. Hmm. Um, but the character in Wide Awake is very much just like, a movie version of a kid. Cole, I feel like is very real and very human. Okay. Where I'm like, I'm watching him and I'm like, yeah, if this was happening to a child, they would react like this and they would they feel- They would scream. <laughs> yeah, they would feel like really weighed down and like as if they're about to just like lose their mind at any given moment. Mm -hmm. um, Shyamalan apparently felt the same. He um, really wanted, after he saw the video audition for um, Haley Joel Osment, he like really wanted to cast him. He he considered like, oh, if I can't get him, I might not even do the movie. Um, so I guess he was. All right. He was right, yeah. Um, Shaman works with kids a lot now that I'm thinking about it. He works with kids and Bruce Willis a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but he writes them pretty well. He does. It's interesting because, yeah, like now that you say that, he, you know, because like signs had kids. Yeah. And um, um, the visit. The visit when he did uh, The Last Airbender, that was all kids. Yeah. Are there kids in the village? Not really, I guess. No, they're like teenagers. Like they're like young adult teenagers. Right. Like not really kids. Yeah, he works with kids a lot interesting um but yeah i think um it's also interesting that um we have uh the bully kid tommy, tommy what the fuck is his name Tom yeah tommy tomasio yeah Tomasio's who is played by trevor morgan and i love that like the little like side plot here is that um this character was in a commercial he was in a cough syrup commercial. He was in a cough syrup commercial. And like, there's this running joke about how he's always the lead in the school plays. And like, it feels like Shyamalan is like almost doing this meta thing where he's just like, this is how shitty child actors normally are. Look at the good child actor I got. Right. <laughs> yeah, because it's they like, you like, you know, it's a joke a couple times and then you actually see the whole commercial. Yeah, then we see it. <laughs> And then like then like Cole just throws something at the TV and like breaks the TV, but yeah, like, Tony Clutch uh, doesn't really react. Yeah, Tony Clutch just like Cole. Cole. <laughs> he like throws a shoe like directly at the screen and breaks the I TV. I know. It took me a while to realize that 
when he leaves for school early on, mm-hmm. like that's that's the same kid. Yeah, that's Tommy. Tommy. Yeah, yeah, because they do the whole thing when it's like, put my arm around your shoulder. Did you like that? It's called improv. <laughs> came up with that on the fly. <laughs> I came up with that on the fly. Um, so yeah, so Haley Joel Osment is also nominated for an Oscar. He's up for Best Supporting Oscar for this performance. As we said, he loses to Michael Caine for Cider House Rules. Um, after this, I, I believe his next immediate project is AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think he kind of got this reputation in Hollywood as being a, like the creepy kid because of that. Yeah, he had to like start doing some other. Yeah, he so he tries to do some other things. He's in Secondhand Lions, which is like really- I really like that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, he's in that with Michael Caine. Yeah. <laughs> um, you want to give me that Oscar? Right? Hey, 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 hey. Oh, uh, I remember. So it was really weird because I didn't see this movie in theaters, as we talked about. But I remember watching the Oscars that year and really, really, really believing Haley Joel Osment was going to win. Oh. And thinking it was going to be so cool because, like, a kid was going to win, you know? Like, I don't know. I was obsessed with seeing people my age in movies. Right. Because you're like, I want to do that. How do I do that? Yeah. Like, I didn't have a conception, really, that Jake Lloyd was, like, a bad actor at the time of Mm -hmm. Phantom Menace. Because I was just like, he's, like, my age, and he's in a movie. Right. (laughs) He must be good. Yeah. You got cast. Well, I remember thinking that about the kids in um, Series of Unfortunate Events. Yeah. Because I remember What's-Her-Face in Series of Unfortunate Events got cast off of, like, somebody seeing her in a school play. And I was like, yes. maybe that'll happen to me. <laughs> right? I was like, oh, that must be how it happens for them. And, like, you just get really focused on, like, I don't know, I was really focused on, like, kids in movies. Like, Lindsay Lohan and Mara Wilson. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. So then we've got Donnie Wahlberg as Vincent <sighs> Gray. He really, there's understanding the assignment and then there's like really gunning for extra credit that no one's offering you. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Well, the thing was, so Wahlberg's in this position at this point, like this is after New Kids on the Block. (laughs) Marky Mark is becoming huge. So Donnie- I gotta do something extreme. Yeah, (laughs) he's like, I don't really know what to do right now. (laughs) He He had nothing going on. So this is what he does. He lost like 40 pounds or something. 40 pounds. He wasn't, he didn't shower for like days before filming this. He like legitimately got sick from how much weight he lost. That's crazy. Yeah. He, and it was like a fucking two minute scene. (laughs) It's a two minute scene. And that. Yeah. And it's just like, I feel like you didn't have to go that method for this. Right. Like who are you trying to impress? Yeah. Um, like it's great it's fine I think you can yeah. achieve that without hurting yourself yeah that's the thing I'm just like okay well this is still a thumbs up performance but like I feel like <laughs> there was an easier path well and apparently he also because you know like the character gets like strips down to his underwear yeah. and he wanted to be fully naked in the scene um, and they were like no you have to keep your underwear no uh, yeah because then you have an r rating yeah they're like, like we can't do that but um i remember though when um when the happening came out mm-hmm. and everybody was like oh it's Shyamalan's first r-rated film and then that movie was hot price. garbage <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, uh, right. And then, uh, then we get, oh, and then we start getting some double credits. We get Glenn Fitzgerald as Sean. Was that the other dick kid? Yeah. The, what is he called? Dick cheese. <laughs> he's like, Tommy's like a little hype man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, he's the, he's the one whose birthday it is at the party. It's his oh. birthday. Oh, right. Cause it says happy birthday, whatever the fuck yeah sean yeah i guess sean then um he has a his double credit is with misha barton as kira collins the little girl who she's good um we find out is she said um she's a little bit older than the other kids and after she did this like people at school like really like gave her looks and she was like teachers didn't really know what to do with her oh wow because they were creeping her out or they she creeped them out and she was creeping them out yeah I mean, she's good. I would say thumbs up on this. Yeah, no, she's great. And uh, yeah, okay, great. Then we'll move on to wait, who is next? Oh, Trevor Morgan as Tommy Tomasino. He's great in that cough syrup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great in that cough syrup commercial. Big time. <laughs> He's also the um, the really annoying, very similar character in uh, Jurassic Park 3. Oh, uh, I was like, where do I know him from? That, yeah, it's, he's like the kid in the, when they're in like the big dome. Uh-huh. That's him. Gotcha. A little bit so, older. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he's been in other stuff too, but that's, that's, I'm always like, where do I know this kid? Um, and he's in a double credit with Bruce Norris, who is Mr. Cunningham, the teacher that <laughs> the teacher has the such a Dick. He was such a dick. He was such a gaslighting asshole in that first. I mean, later, I guess he and Cole make up because they have, like, you know, a little, you know. Oh, yeah, because they're chill later. Yeah, he, like, walks him to the stage. But um, he's a real prick in that scene. Yeah. Um, and so that's the end of the credits on film. Um, other things really to know. Uh, Angela Page is Mrs. Collins. Greg Wood is Mr. Collins. Peter Tambakis plays Darren. Jeffrey Zubarinus plays Bobby. And M. Night Shyamalan plays Dr. Hill. Yeah, he's doing the whole uh, um, Hitchcock thing, but with more lines. Yeah, he said he uh, regretted playing the doctor, but he wanted to do it as a like tribute to his parents because I guess they're both doctors. Gotcha. I, I could take it. I don't, you know... It didn't make or break the film for me. No, no, no. no. <laughs> and having seen him as the lead in his very first movie, mm-hmm. this was fine. Yeah. He um, should stay behind the camera. All right, so that's our cast. Um, let's move in now to some analysis of the film. Cool. Yeah. We've been touching on some bits and pieces here and there. Is there anything... Um, Maybe you think we should start with Miss Now? Um, well, I think, you know, going with like talking about like why was this so successful and that sort of thing. One thing that really, you know, and this is the thing that all good horror does is, you know, what is the horror a metaphor for? Yeah. You know, in this case, you know, it very much is, you know, bullying and abuse. And, you know, Cole is strange to his classmates, not because they know that he talks to ghosts or sees ghosts, but because they can perceive that something's different about him. 
you right. know, which then becomes, you know, like his condition can be read as any number of sort of, you know, cognitive differences that a kid might have um, from attention disorders to, to what have you. Um, you know, and he's bullied by the ghosts, you know, he's, you know, he, he is physically hurt by them. You know, there's evidence of like bruises and scratches that he says the ghosts have, have given him. He's like psychologically abused by them, mm-hmm. you know, and it's basically, it becomes sort of like, you know, Cole becomes everyone who's ever been bullied or been subject to mental or physical abuse by somebody. And, you know, he just, he, I think it's really poignant in those scenes where, you know, like he tries to tell the teacher what he knows and the teacher like totally shuts him down and humiliates him, you know, and it makes him not want to talk about things. And, you know, like talking to his mom, you know, the few times he has tried to be truthful, she's like not having it or doesn't believe him, you know, and it really speaks to why people who are victims of abusive situations don't speak out um, because, you know, somebody who's been through that can probably see those scenes and see, um, you know, those exact situations playing out for them. Yeah. Um, well, and I also think there's this layer too with, with Cole where um, he's also trying to protect his mom as well. Mm-hmm. And he, he knows that she's like stressed out and worried about him. And it's like, he wants to tell her, but he doesn't want to tell her because, you know, that's, that's going to stress her out. And he's afraid that she'll think of him as a freak. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's this, it's all done really, really well. And he plays it so well, like that kitchen scene when she comes back and all the cupboards are open and he's sitting there and he just looks like he's going to cry, but he, he can't say anything. Yeah. You know? And she's like, were you looking for something? And he's just like, Pop-Tart. Right. <laughs> and he's like doing this sort of like song and dance with her to like preserve right. this last shred of peace and normalcy he's terrified to lose and that scene in the dinner where she's just like you know just tell me if you took the brooch like i just want to know like i just want you to be honest with him and he's got his hands over his face and he just won't lie you know he's not gonna lie about you know he can't do it and he's trying to communicate something to her and it's just not uh it's not happening um you know and then the scene in the car when he tells her what's going on and they kind of suddenly have this connection they didn't have before you know, it, it kind of plays like, you know, two people who have gone through, you know, because I feel like you get the sort of insinuation that maybe, you know, her husband, if he wasn't abusive, he at the very least was not a very good husband. Um, right. So, you know, it's like two people who share in trauma finally talking for the first time and, you know, maybe they're reacting to it differently or they're having a different um sort of experience with it but you know that you know that car scene is you know finally just a sort of moment of connection that they they can have yeah so well said thank you um yeah and then it's it's so interesting too with bruce willis's character finally you know because earlier in the film cole says try talking to her when she's asleep because then she has to listen Mm. to you and you know so he does and he talks to her in her sleep and you know basically is like okay i get it now you know, and talks to her about things that were problems before he he was killed. Um, yeah, you know that weren't really presented as problems in the beginning, but were kind of like little things that like he was putting his career first, and you know it was he was um, really kind of you know leaving his home life and his domestic life to be sort of like 
second place to, you know, the awards he was winning and the work he was doing. And, you know, that wasn't, that's something that just wasn't really resolved in, in life. And that's kind of what he had to come to terms with. Right. Yeah. And we, we kind of realized like, you know, he's talking about, you know, earlier, he's like, I feel like if I help you, it means that I will have helped Vincent uh, Gray. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, we think, oh, that's his unfinished business, so to speak, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's having that moment with his wife at the end yeah, where he comes, you know, and he's like, it's kind of an, an apology and kind of like a confession, whatever yeah. thing or whatever. Yeah. It's like, you were always first. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I always forget how quickly this movie wraps up. Yeah, because you get to the, the climactic, the like climax of the action, I would say, is at the funeral or the yeah. rape. And then you've got the denouement of Cole and his mom, and that's kind of the emotional climax. And then you're yeah. like, great, you're we're done. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're done. And there's just that, that quick moment with like uh, the play, the King Arthur thing. Yeah, you're like, oh, cute. Okay, his like thing came true that he was right. telling his mom earlier in the movie about what happened during his fictional yes. day. Um, and then they have their like final chat and they go their separate ways <clears throat> and they don't actually it is kind of interesting that like those characters don't get like a formal end to their relationship right because we never like obviously Cole knew like he knew yeah. the entire time but like you never have a moment where Cole says to him like Cole never said like and I think it's a really interesting choice that Cole is never like at any point like oh my oh my god you're dead like you know like right. all the times when Cole was like really frustrated with him like he never was like fuck you you're yeah you know, like he was letting it play out um and you know it's, it's interesting because we don't get closure to that you know like what was Cole's thought process through all this while mm-hmm. talking to him and that sort of thing but you know, I guess that's not the story that we're trying to tell. No, but yeah, but it, you, you do wonder though, like, yeah. and like, and it's like, okay, has Cole had enough experiences with the ghosts that he has figured out, like, being direct with them isn't the route to take, right? You know, like, and that's why he doesn't say anything, right? It is, so it is interesting to think about. Um, yeah, and uh. Oh no, we we already hit on that. Okay. Um, any other big analysis or takes for the film? Not really. I mean, I think that's another thing about it is like, yes, there is metaphor to it, but it also is pretty straightforward as well. Um, yeah. You know, it's about a lot of trauma um, and and baggage we carry, and you know how that represents and the different ways people have to go about coping. Yeah. And healthy coping and. Mm-hmm coping in and a little bit about like perception right yeah I mean that's a huge thing is is like um you know how the ghosts see the world how you as the audience see the world based on what you've understood to be the truth oh yeah definitely um even thinking about how you know like everything with the hospital and the doctor and Mm -hmm. like from um even what Malcolm thinks you know like that maybe Tony Collette is abusing mm-hmm. her son. And, you know, that's obviously not the truth. And we get like that 
interesting narrative play mm -hmm. with Misha Barton's character, you know, the child who is being hurt by their mother. Yeah. Everything going on there. So cool, cool, yeah. cool, cool. Good stuff. Um, let's move now into our one good scare segment. Okay. This is where we say what we each feel personally is the most frightening moment of this film. Mm -hmm. I, okay, here's what I'm gonna go with because this has lingered with me mm -hmm. since the first time I saw this. When in the lead up to um, the mom, the ghost mom in the kitchen, mm -hmm. Cole gets up to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And he like runs in real quick and we see the thermostat drop. Mm -hmm. And you know, at that point we know that like, when it gets cold, it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And we see like the shadow of the woman walk by mm -hmm. while he's peeing. Yeah. That scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and every time I had to go pee as for like the next several years. You were running I was, fall. Yes, yes. And so like, obviously I don't really have that now, but like, there is still something kind of that like got into my lizard brain because mm -hmm. of that scene and is just always gonna be there a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, that's creepy. I think for me, the thing that always sticks with me is that scene where he walks up the stairs and hears the voice kind of like oh. in the laundry chute because it's like the only time we get like a really aggressive, scary, ghost yes. if you like like kind of the kind of thing you would hear in like the conjuring or or something like it feels it almost feels like tone wise it's pulled out of like insidious it does kind of yeah and yeah because we get that brief thing where um they find the, like the automatic writing that he's been doing yeah that's like really dark and violent we're not mm -hmm. we don't really find out who that comes from yeah um but yeah oh the yeah, that's yeah. that's creepy. And then when he gets put into the cupboard and locked yeah. in there with the ghost, like that's like you know. And then it goes quiet. Yeah. The, the whole it's still it was one of the first thing that creeps me out about the movie when I saw it, and it still is very creepy to me. It is really creepy. Cool, 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 cool. All right. Um. Now we will move into our segment called the View from the Closet. How can we view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens? Um, well, you could, I think the easy one is to make the argument that, you know, as Cole represents sort of the other, that is yeah. one, sort of the othernesses you could, you could take from that. Yeah. I'd also definitely. like to imagine Tony Collette as a, as a swinging bisexual woman. Hey, maybe out on the town after her divorce yeah she's making moves on some of the other moms at the birthday yeah. party oh my god when she calls the mom and she's like hey i'd like to talk about your fucking asshole kid or whatever she said <laughs> right and you're like yes Tony Collette. yeah yeah i could see that yeah yeah definitely cole is you know he's ostracized he's other he's made fun of for being different um he's, he's very got great fashion he's got great fashion he's a sensitive you know, yeah, he's very sensitive. He's sensitive emotionally. He's obviously sensitive, like psychically. Yeah, you know, which is always he's got that little tuft of white hair. Yeah. <laughs> so he's very, he's you know, very fashion forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um. Cool. And then we'll move into 
our last major segment, which is legacy, legacy, what is a legacy? The impact of the film, um, how it's regarded now. Definitely fodder for a million satires. A million satires. People um, love to, to parody the icy dead people. I mean, yeah, I feel like every sitcom of the last 20 years has had an icy dead people joke. That was in uh, Legally Blonde and Musical. When, uh, yeah. She, when she sees um, the Greek chorus. Yeah. <laughs> people <laughs> it is yeah yeah it's made it makes its way into broadway yeah parodied in other movies it's um it's on afi's greatest quotes of all time mm-hmm. so yeah um i also think that this movie is the m night Shyamalan movie yeah i think no matter what else he does from here on out this is the movie he's going to be most closely associated with and remembered for which is not a terrible of his films to no be associated with no no um i do feel for him because i feel like he's been chasing this movie mm-hmm. ever since he made it um and yeah he peaked real early yeah i feel like he just he doesn't really know what to do because of this movie and because of the twist and like he has played into having a twist now and he has mm-hmm. tried to avoid it in some movies i just i think he got really stuck yeah on the wrong part of why this movie worked so well well and i think that he got stuck in the same way all of us got stuck on the wrong part of why this movie worked so well because it wasn't yeah. the twist or that there was a twist it was just the way he structured like you said, like even the, the revelation about what is going on with Cole, that doesn't come until an almost an hour into the movie. And that's yeah. also part of like the skill he has in the script to to craft a, a revelation in the story. Yep. This movie is a magic trick. Yeah. He's he's doing misdirection for most of it. Yeah. To make us look at the other hand. Yeah. Um and that's I think has been lost in most if not all of his subsequent projects yeah other movies have also been trying to like do what this movie did in that regard kind of for the wrong reasons and right they either pale in comparison or they just botch it or um even movies at the time like stir of echoes also came out in 1999 with kevin bacon and that's pretty mm-hmm. much exactly the same movie as this movie Mm-hmm. but it gets overshadowed and part of that is because it doesn't do the things that this movie does really well right. including its ending and like thinking back to like what i was talking about at the beginning with martyrs lane like being slow horror trying to incorporate horror motifs and tropes without making it like overtly horror you know that's something mm-hmm. that i think people forget like sounds of the lambs or sounds of the lambs sounds of the lambs <laughs> and, um, <laughs> The Sixth Sense does perfectly because it does weave in this sort of like family drama narrative, you know, like the classic things that come from haunted houses or ghost films and yeah, and that sort of thing. Like it's very on the nose at time with that, but it's done so well and it's almost so, it's so unexpected in the type of movie it is. And I think that a lot of people are trying to capture 
that sort of straddling the line that the sixth sense did of yeah you know interpersonal drama and you know outright you know classic horror film yeah and kind of also like we were talking about earlier like this film either because of like the way it did it or the time it came out like you're really not going to be able to do that the way this film did ever again right Right. like it's not that you can't do it but you have to do it in a different way now right um but yeah um it's still a really strong legacy overall i would say We, we did talk a little bit about like yeah like some people are kind of like clapping back on it a bit and you know is that like a bit of revisionist history is that like yeah like are you telling me that you felt this way 10 years ago (laughs) exactly um or are you just trying to be contrarian um and the right is it like is that because old was kind of not a success so you're gonna shit on the sixth sense now you know my thing about M. Night Shyamalan is like yeah he's made some pretty terrible films yeah but you know I do think basically what happened is he did amazing and then the thing that happens when a male director makes an amazing film he gets carte blanche yep. because they want to capitalize on his name and he didn't do that great in his subsequent attempts and he got backlash that white male directors don't get yeah, absolutely and i think people don't really acknowledge that a lot of their reaction to m night Shyamalan has to do with the fact that you know he's an indian american man yep and, you know, he's a brown director in a world of white directors and you're going to hold him to a much, you know, they're going to hold him to a much stricter standard. And, you know, a couple slip ups are, you know, suddenly he's a one trick pony or he's washed mm-hmm. up or he's not very good. And it's like, the thing that I think people don't realize is like, he does very unconventional. Th- like, you can't say he's derivative. No. Like nobody has ever said M. Night Shyamalan copies off of other people. Like even if right. what he does doesn't land or it's it's not that great, you know, at least it's different. At least it's different. And like his stuff is still the stuff that's being copied by other people. Yeah. He doesn't do the copying. Yeah. Like people are looking at his test, you know? Yeah. And 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 they try and read they like signs even, like that even gets yeah. parodied all the time and gets, you know, worked into other sort of science fiction horror films and that sort of thing. Like, you know, people are are taking things he does and, you know, they'll make fun of it, but then they also put it in their film and it's like, okay, you're yep. not doing that to, to other, you know, to white male directors who have made yep. some pretty shitty films. <laughs> Yes, there's the way that that happens that definitely feels like exceptionally mean-spirited when it comes to M. Night Shyamalan and like is obviously like racially motivated, even if subconsciously. Um, But I appreciate that he keeps getting back up and he keeps making movies. Yeah, like, you know, he's had to do some, you know, he's had to maybe take his name so obviously off of some things. Yeah. But, you know, like, yeah, like, I mean, I, what what were you saying? Oh, no, finish your thought. I was just going to say, like, The Village, I actually don't hate it. I don't hate The Village. It doesn't need the twist, but I don't hate it. Yeah, I, I enjoy that movie. I think it's creepy. Never saw Lady in the Water. I hear it's oh, whatever. Yeah. Signs. Pretty Signs great. great. Great stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. He like, he dips, right? The happening. Not good. Yeah. After Earth. Not good. 
Oh, I forgot he did After Earth. Yeah. Avatar. Not good from what I hear. No, very bad. But then he has come back, like, he came back strong with The Visit. Yeah. He came back strong with Split. Yeah, Split was pretty well received. Yeah, I guess. I haven't seen Glass yet, but I guess that's a bit more divisive. And Yeah, and I guess it also, it's a sequel to an already divisive film. Yeah. But, you know, there's ups and downs with him. And um, thinking about what you said about with his name, I think where he really shot himself in the foot is ironically attaching his name so much to this movie yeah um like the very first thing after the movie ends for the first closing credit is an m night Shyamalan film right yeah because so, he's trying to you know he's rocketing himself to auteur status yes and so i think that's when everybody was like okay well you have to keep making movies like this and there have to be twists yeah and then he was in a corner because of that yeah so but regardless, I mean, at the time that Sixth Sense came out, it was the 10th highest grossing movie of all time. Good for like, you. That's something, I mean, obviously it's not now anymore, but that's something that he should always be proud of. Yeah. Um, and is so rare for a movie for adults that's not part of a franchise to do that. Right. In fact, I'm pretty sure I did a quick cursory search. I think the only movies to do that that weren't part of a franchise and were for an adult audience after this movie was Passion of the Christ and American Sniper. I did see American Sniper. I did see Passion of the Christ actually too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think those movies succeeded for different reasons than this one did. Yes. Um, No, I think I think people, I think it's definitely like the film school bro thing to like have divisive contrarian opinions about certain films nowadays. And this is one of them. Um, And, you know, are there things that make it imperfect? Sure. But the things that I was seeing getting picked out on were not the thing, like, you know, not the logical arguments you can make for why there's some flaws in this film yeah yeah definitely but, um, and and just its legacy of how massive it was for pop culture at the time mm-hmm. um which there are still movies that hit that like insane everybody must see status mm-hmm. but i feel like the way this movie was talked about in 1999 is the way we more so talk about like prestige television now right right we've kind of moved into like event tv yeah breaking bad game of thrones right um (laughs) so that's i don't know i think that's that's kind of education just came out kids (laughs) so yeah cool um anything else we want to say about the film's legacy no, I think I think that I, I and I mean this without any sort of cliche or anything. I do think the name, like just the title of this film, the legacy kind of speaks for itself at this point. Yeah. Everyone just knows the sixth sense, knows the iconic yep. beats. Um yeah. Yeah, there's I mean, like yeah, we have several friends who aren't super into horror or probably haven't seen this movie, but they'll be able to tell us almost everything about it yeah you know it's 
became that per- pervasive, you know? Yeah. No, I, I think it is, you know, and for a film to only be, you know, 22 years old and to have that level of just sort of cultural, like continued cultural awareness. Mm. Like you think about that stuff with something like Star Wars or Gone with the Wind or Psycho yeah. or things that came out, you know, decades and decades and, you know, 50 plus years ago. Um, and yeah. this is still, this is, you know, this is something that came out, you know, less than 30 years ago and is at that same marker, I would say, of like hugely iconic um, moments in, in cinema. Absolutely. Very rare thing. Well, we will close out, I think now our discussion on The Sixth Sense with the following question. Okay. Has there been a movie in the last 22 years with a twist as good or impactful as this movie? Hmm. And it doesn't have to be confined to horror. Right. I'm like, have I seen a film in the past 22 years? <laughs> <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> I'll go. Here's what I thought of when I came okay. up with this question. Um, my first thought, weirdly enough, was the twist in the prestige. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, I actually think that movie is designed for you to figure out the twist. Whereas I don't think The Sixth Sense is. Right. It's one of those. It's almost, yeah. it's like a gotcha. Yeah. And then I thought of Saw. Mm. That's pretty good. Um, And I was like, okay, yeah, but I don't know that that culturally had as much of an impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think then I finally landed on the closest for a twist as good, at least, Mm -hmm. is the twist in Shutter Island. Yeah, I do remember that being kind of a thing people really talked about a lot. Like, I think that movie came out when I was in like high school or just started college. Um, And I remember people talking about the twist in that a ton. And that kind of being something where it really got people. Yeah. You know? Um, It's interesting because I'm thinking about twists and earlier on Twitter today, um, there was like a trending topic for like moments in movies where like the audience cheered and stuff, which isn't. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, which isn't necessarily a twist, but I was thinking about some of them like, you know, like one that maybe wasn't necessarily a twist, but was like a big thing was like um, when the lightsaber goes to Ray's hand um oh. a, you know which not again not a twist but it was kind of like a built no but like that thing of like a collective reaction yeah um yeah shutter island definitely is probably the closest i would say culturally to a twist i'm thinking a lot honestly about television because like you said i think mm. we're in the age of of tv and obviously game of thrones you know all sorts of twists that some people knew about some people didn't I'm thinking like the end of Mayor of Easttown, if only because we were all watching it at the same time. But that's something where you're expecting the twists. Yeah. The mystery piece. Um, Yeah, I mean, I feel like, (laughs) you know what a great, a great recent twist was, is uh, the twist in uh, the Bob's Burger episode of The Haunting. 
Oh my God, that is a great twist. <laughs> but no, I think I think you're right. I think Shutter Island is probably the closest um, present equivalent. I'm actually, I'm staring at the book right now on my shelf. Um, but nice. the closest present equivalent we have to um, a twist like that. Yeah. And I think it, again, speaks to the twist of the sixth sense that we're sitting here and we're like, we can't really come up with something Mm-hmm. definitively great we're like yeah well maybe this or maybe this or this is as close as it gets you know yeah because I'm like I feel like it's every 40 years somebody has some kind of twist that defines filmmaking for the next several decades right because <laughs> you have Psycho and then you have Star Wars and then you have The Sixth Sense and I'm like waiting for the next thing that really yeah manages like, to like get the audience totally blown away so maybe we're kind of due yeah, maybe maybe it'll be in the next couple. Maybe it'll be maybe it'll be in Dune. Maybe they'll really <laughs> <laughs> they'll really just they'll really switch some things around. Um, mess things up. Maybe Halloween Kills. I was gonna say Halloween Kills. Um, that's that's prime material for you know that's something where you think you know every possible thing there is to know at this point about that franchise. Perfect opportunity to shake it up. Maybe. Yeah. She wakes up at the end and it's been a dream the whole time. Oh my God. It's Halloween, 1978. <laughs> She's about to go to school. She's going to school on Halloween day. She has to drop off the key at the Myers place. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because even thinking about twists, like, and it wasn't even really a twist, but they, I think they hit it pretty well in marketing, like the Matrix even. Um, mm. relied on a bit of a twist because I don't think they really advertised what the sort of mythology of the world was. Interesting. Another 1999 film. Exactly. <laughs> like that relied on kind of a real upheaval um, of uh, the world that you understood the film to be taking place in within the first 40 minutes. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm down for mystery writers of the world. I'm down for a real twist. Hey. You're ready to, you know. to shock me. Yeah, always up for a good twist. If, like we were saying, it's organic, makes sense for the story, doesn't take away from the story if it's not there. Here's, a, here's the thing people have to contend with, though, is Google, right? And Twitter. I know. And I'm like, what do you, do you flood the system with bots, with like fake I, endings? Like, how do you, like, what I sort of meta function can you do to work with that? I was thinking about that too. I was like, a movie like this wouldn't, couldn't happen today because it would be all over Twitter. Which is something M. Night Shyamalan has said about it. He's like, yeah, it came out just before, you know, the internet would have ruined mm-hmm. the ability to do it. But I'm like, can we can we game the system can we flood social you know like right like you do seo tactics like you know uh, what, there's something with that i somebody somebody will figure it out were you just i mean you just gotta like i've been seeing some folks um talking talking about uh midnight mass yeah which is coming out a few days from this recording and um being like Honestly, Pete, guys, just like mute Midnight Mass until you're done with it because it's going to get people talking. Yeah. You know, there's no way around it. So you either, yeah, you either play into it or you just like step away because you want to avoid it, but then you're not taking part in the culture of it all, you know? Right. So it becomes, do you want to be shocked and surprised or do you want to be part of the communal experience of something? Because I have a friend who, there are some films where she will fully like, 
close her eyes, shut her ears. If a trailer comes on, she doesn't want to see yeah. a single thing. And then sometimes there are things where she, you know, all she wants to see trailers and, and shots. Yeah. And, and I've kind of done that to an extent. Yeah. Like for some things, I don't know, I guess if I'm really excited for something or whatever, I was like, I don't want to see anything about it. I want to go in as blind as possible. Mm-hmm. And other things, I'm like, show me every single still and promo photo before I see it. That's how I feel about Halloween kills. I'm like, I want to see everyone's like (laughs) shots. I want to see, I want to see a quote from every character. (laughs) (laughs) Like I can't consume enough before October 15th. (laughs) I really can't. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to see what people can do with, you know, and I feel like that goes back to Blair Witch, you know, taking what they Mm. had and, you know, doing something really unique with it. Um, Even Paranormal Activity, not doing something unique in the form, but doing something unique in how they used it to create like one of the most tense, like just physically upsetting film experiences Uh I think I've ever been through yep you know like there's definitely we're due for some sort of you know maybe i don't know maybe it's it's you know i've been hearing chatter about dune and the way you know you know is that the next sort of big step in in uh influential film um and that sort of thing so could be yeah you know it's early on in a new decade it's this you know post well ish pandemic like <laughs> it's time for like it's time for an upheaval you know yeah. we've got a house of gucci coming out too oh i think that'll be the one to do it yeah well i just love how everyone's really latched on to the uh, father son and house of gucci line <laughs> <laughs> which like i missed the first time i watched it because i always cut out of these things too early and i forget there's like usually a five second scene after the but no it's exciting stuff it is there's a lot to look forward about what's to come next mm-hmm. um in terms of what's coming next for us um halloween halloween basically yeah uh mm-hmm. our october episode doesn't have a solidified topic no i have a couple of ideas and by a couple cool. i mean one <laughs> same so we'll we'll be figuring out something soon. so keep an eye out for that mm-hmm. um in the meantime, get in touch with us. Let us know what are your spooky Halloween plans. Um, send us some pictures of your decorations. If you've got your costume together, of course, share your thoughts on the sixth sense. And uh, Miss Mel can tell you where you can do that. Once again, so you can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at splatterchatter666 minus every single vowel in that handle but if you just you know put it in the search bar we usually pop right up you can check us out on tumblr colleen really chugging away at that tumblr content yay friend of the show splatterchatter.tumblr.com um we i fixed up our instagram i believe it is splatterchatter666 i believe on instagram um you can uh oh no i think it's just splatter underscore chat is what it is Splatter and Discord chatter. Um, you can also um, leave comments on Mr. Fryer's blog and read all of his um, recent postings. He's got a, seems like it was a pretty popular post about uh, the origins of some horror films on splatterjustchatter.com. Yeah, yeah. Um, this spooky season, I'm going to do 
a series of posts looking uh-huh. at the history of horror films. Um, the first one, as of this recording, is up right now about where did it all start, kind of. And then basically mm-hmm. after that, I'll be going decade by decade. Love uh, it. <laughs> up, to, up through the 2010s. That's so, exciting. Oh. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff. Um, you can also support us on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash splatter chatter 666, or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or Stitcher. That's a fantastic way to support that we will love you forever for. Mm-hmm. And until we return to you in October um, at prime spooky time, au revoir, adios, 